Records Club with Brad and Al. We're podcasting as part of the Now Playing Network. Each episode of the Records Club, we take a look at the films of a single director, their breakout films, their career touchstones, the personal labors of love that they made, and hidden gems that can be found amongst their filmography. You can never tell what themes and connections to other films that can come up when you look at a director's whole body of work. Come join us in the film journey, a journey which takes us in this episode to British-born filmmaker Alan Parker. Hello, guys. I'm Al. And I'm Brad. A little advance notice to the listeners of the Directors Club that we'll be taking a little bit of a break from looking for directors in our next episode. Instead, what we're going to have is a special bonus episode uh, talking uh, about the details and reminiscences about our experiences at the Toronto Film Festival. We will, in addition, be joined by Peter Richards from the Chicago Film Discussion Group and our epic episode on Terrence Malick, who will be back from this year's Toronto Film Festival, and he'll be filling us in on all the remarkable films that will be coming in in this uh, year and beyond. So hope you guys get a chance to check that out, and we'll be back to doing regular directors on the following episode, which will be one all about the work of Orson Welles. So uh, look forward to you guys uh, giving that a listen as well. Joining us on the journey to Parker, over the wall, so to speak, is a return visitor for the Directors Club, um, a cinematic polymath in Chicago, and someone who is a film critic, a film writer, uh, posts about short films for RogerEbert.com. He is a film teacher, and in, he's also helps with the Chicago Film Critics Society at their on their annual film festival. Association. In the Chicago Film Critics Association. Thanks. And on top of all that, in some magical way, he's managed to both come back from a out-of-state U2 concert and be able to grace us with it uh, to join <laughs> us here. Pleased to welcome back Colin Suter. Hiya, Colin. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's, I just got back from Detroit uh, from seeing a, my 36th U2 concert, so... Did they get it right this time? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, well, it's, it's hard for them to get it wrong, but yeah, um, it was a good show. It was a good show. Sweet, so. sweet. Now, uh, what's your basic introduction to Park, and what was like the moment where you thought, well, this is a guy who's someone to follow? Well, I mean, I've been aware of his work since uh, I was a kid, really. I mean, uh, growing up a film lover in the 80s, he was a guy who always came out with something interesting, uh, starting with, uh, you know, for me, I guess, Shoot the Moon, maybe. I saw it when, I was, when it was on cable. Um, and then The Wall, Pink Floyd, The Wall, you know, that was a big album at that time. And um, I just remember seeing that when it came out on video. And just always seeing his name on these posters for these prestigious films that came out after that. And I just, I think it was a couple of years ago in, on my umpteenth viewing of either Shoot the Moon or The Commitments, where I thought, what the, nobody, what happened to Alan Parker? Where is, what happened to this guy? He was a really interesting director. And I just told Jim Laskowski, the former host of the show, I, th- I asked him, have you guys, have you done Alan Parker yet? And he's, no. I thought, yeah, I think he'd be really interesting for the show. 
And now that I've gone back and looked at his body of work, um, it, it definitely is good for this show because I'm not in no way am I here to say he is one of the greatest living directors of all time. <laughs> He's not one of my all time favorite directors because, his, but his, I, I think just the scope of his work reveals something really interesting about the the, the projects that he chose to do. Because his movies, the results of his movies range from the great to the god awful. And so <laughs> we're going to have, I'm sure we're going to have differing viewpoints on all of these films. But um, I just think it's interesting that here's a guy who makes these very serious, prestigious Academy Award nominated or Oscar winning films. Um, and yet he's managed to make five musicals without one of them being a disaster. Which I think is pretty interesting. I think that's a pretty hard thing to pull off. Uh, I mean, we've seen great directors in the past, like uh, Peter Bogdanovich and um, Robert Altman and Francis Coppola make musicals, and they just fell on their face. Now, there have been revisionist, uh, you know, there's been revisions of their assessment of these films, and now they're kind of considered, you know, strangely great. Um, But Alan Parker's never had that problem i mean i don't love all his musicals there's one that i really just don't like at all but it's not a bomb it's not a it it actually won an academy award but um and i I just think that's and i I think there's kind of an auteur he's definitely an auteur in in a way uh that there's a there's a unifying theme to a lot of his films oh that's super cool i'm looking forward to seeing this kind of like exploration of of altruism right the common mm. idea on altruism is that a a a author a director has a certain kind of viewpoint that he uses in his films to continually express um and i think parker does uh, that in certain spots i think mm. this is going to be a pretty interesting exploration because there's certain motifs that show up certain visual things that keeps he's returning to right right there's a certain perspective that keeps returning to and as as we'll discover, there's actually certain particular controversial attitudes that are the work that he makes that seems to keep showing up mm-hmm. over, at, over on his work. Right, because as an auteur director, he has a much wider variety of interests yeah. than a lot of others. He, he does keep going back to the musical and to the suspense film, but then he sprinkles in some comedies. Mm-hmm. He puts in uh, uh, straight dramas and... One thing that is just constant in all of these films, for better or for worse, is he goes to the extreme with everything. He once said in an interview that uh, his worst fear uh, would be to make a boring film. And I think that we will discuss films that we love and films that annoy the hell out of us, (laughs) but I don't think we'll ever be able to say it's boring because... He's so uh, committed to each project, Mm -hmm. and if it's a a project that really uh, suits what he's going for, the results will be extraordinary. But then at the same time, if it's a project that might be flawed from the beginning, that might have some things that that don't work, that will also become more and more obvious as you watch the film. I would go and expand on that a little bit to say that um, the course of his work embraces a whole panoply of different reactions, which does include stuff that's very boring. <laughs> um, uh, but that's as a result of 
something that he, Alan Parker, has expressed interest that he always wanted, especially early in his career, to make a film that was distinct from the earlier film. Sometimes when we've, as we've gone on these episodes, we've noticed how a director's like efforts modulate or, they, or their later film is just a reaction against the immediately previous film. But it seems to me that Parker is a lot more hopscotch in that he just wants mm-hmm. to jump in from one kind of film to another kind of film to a third kind of film and always wants to just keep testing himself. Yeah, he's kind of like Ang Lee in that respect. Mm-hmm. Oh, dude, that is... <laughs> Dude, that's a great comparison. Yes. yes. And sometimes the, and he, he carries along his techniques, his techniques and his general interests. And sometimes those techniques work um, wonderfully for a film. Sometimes they work to make the film – they contribute to make the, the film a disaster. They add a little anvil to the uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> proceedings. And sometimes sure. they're just kind of at odds. And so we'll, we'll be exploring the different ways that his – his personal tendencies will interact with all the different kinds of films that he does. And his first film is a great example of <laughs> a film that is different. It's a film named Bugsy Malone in 1976. Best intro I can say for it, it is a phenomenally fascinating debut concept. He decided to make a gangster movie, but one that's not just a musical, but one that's entirely stars kids as all the main characters. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this is one of those films that you can't believe really exists, but uh, I'm kind of glad it does because I think it's delightful in a, in, 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 in a very weird it, – it's just a weird film. Uh, much in the same way, like I said, Robert Altman, <laughs> like Popeye. I think this and Popeye belong in the same kind of category of like oh, interesting. weird, like like this kind of oddball musical idea that shouldn't work, and yet it. I I kind of think it does. I can see people being put off by it, but it, it's a it's a full on musical. It's shot like a, a Broadway musical and shot like a gangster film. There's a lot of noir shots in this film. And the songs are all composed by Paul Williams, mm. and so there's a there's that kind of whimsical quality to to it, especially in the music. Uh, this is one that was written and directed by Alan Parker. This is his concept, and I think to kind of come out starting with something like with a project like this, it couldn't have been easy to make. I mean, I've made films with kids before, and it's hard, really hard, and to have nothing but kids on your set uh and who have to sort of act like old school gangsters you you don't get the sense that there's any strain from it uh on parker's end it's he's clearly having a ball making this film 
And he really did create a world here that is uh, unique to this film. It's not just they're gangsters, but every all the sets are scaled to kid size. Ah. The cars move by bicycle chain. They're not like dri- drive, putting it in drive and going. Like they have to like pedal to make these cars move. And when they shoot each other, they're not shooting bullets. They're shooting like pie filling. Um, so that it's not like bloody murder or anything, but they, but when they when somebody gets hit, they have to go down, even though it's not bloody. And and the film I think is very kid friendly, in spite of the sort of weird violent streak in it with with the shooting and white pie gush, you know, splatting on on them. But the movie kind of ends in this very. It's almost like he hadn't wasn't quite sure how to end this but he wanted to end it in a grand fashion and i think the movie earns he got the ending that kubrick couldn't get with dr strangelove so it's a <laughs> big massive pie fight at the end and really well edited and well done i mean you could kind of see like right from the get-go parker's talent for cinematography for editing for coverage i mean just uh really just having a a, a natural flair for technique and craft Mm. in this very strange project. (laughs) Now, I just have to make an inquiry as to if if you guys have any insight or knowledge as to where he came up with that idea to make that the concept of his first film. Well, Parker started out in advertising and got into film uh, via writing. And so, and he made a few short films, uh, some uh, documentaries. And uh, he, when he came about this film, he wanted to do a film for his children. He had uh, a bunch of children, uh, even at this early stage in his career, and uh, decided that he wanted to make one especially for them. And, you know, it, it really works on that level. Probably the ideal audience for this film would be uh, kids who are big fans of James Cagney. <laughs> so not oh, not sure okay. if that exists. I do want to call out kind of the musical aspect of it because Paul Williams is such a brilliant composer. He does, His yeah. uh, songs here aren't going to quite reach the heights he's uh he'll do in a in a couple years with the Muppet movie but it really goes into the stratosphere when the musical numbers are on and it does a very and does it in a very odd way because the voice all the singing voices mm-hmm. are adults so there's a very strange oh, disconnect watching watching these adult singing voices, including uh, Paul Williams himself, coming out of the mouths uh, of these children. Not just children, but African-American children right? who are lip-syncing to Paul Williams. <laughs> it's very strange because you'll hear a character talk in their normal voice, and then once they sing, they sound like Paul Williams. So like, there's a weird inconsistency to it that just... That's actually a, such an amazing <laughs> concept because... The common thing, I guess, for musicals or when people sing in musicals is that the music and singing expresses their true emotions that they cannot express through dialogue or don't want to express in conversation. So think on the idea of like that the true form of the, how they sing is going to be in, in these adult voices when it's kids that are tackling an adult genre. Mm. Well, th- this idea is no more personified uh, than in the performance of Jodie Foster, right. who plays the vampy 
torch singing gangster mall Tallulah who uh, and again Jodie Foster is only 13 uh, when this is being filmed but because of her immense experience having already done Taxi Driver and and other films uh, she is head over over heels the best actor in the group and especially uh, when compared to Scott Baio who is probably the the least of the group I I, I kind (laughs) of disagree with that I mean, I, I'm certainly no huge fan of Scott Bayo, but watching this film, I think these are the two actors in it where you can see, yeah, I, I, I can tell that these two can go far. Like, I can tell mm-hmm. these two are the, the actors who will get singled out in this film and, and will have careers beyond it. But many of the scene-stealing moments are from uh, the young actor playing Fat Stamp, Sam, oh, yeah. who's yeah. The, the, the head gangster of, of the gang we're, we're rooting for. And he's uh, this big kind of lumbering guy who's uh, always, you know, D's and D's and D's kind of guy. And, yeah. uh, and he, he's, he's got a lot of energy as an inexperienced actor that he manages to steal a lot of scenes. But Jodie Foster has the has a kind of a Gilda-esque number uh, called My Name is Tallulah, where Mm -hmm. she uh, just acts like, you know, the adult version of this thing. But because everyone's a a kid, we're kind of looking at it as more of this this cute thing. (laughs) Every so often you get a child actor who has these preternatural-like qualities, because a lot of child actors are basically effective at at saying their lines on cue, giving you a different range of emotions. But see, it seems to me that Jodie Foster get, has managed to almost emerge to make a whole persona. Like, she has more depth and nuance at 12 than many actors have had throughout their uh, careers in Hollywood. And, just, and it's just kind of remarkable that she, on top of all that, she has a presence that manages to, for example, be side-by-side with De Niro and Taxi Driver here, you know? <laughs> she has a kind of a potential darkness to her that makes me intrigued to say, how does she interpret a gangster mall character? How do you take noir concepts like the femme fatale and betrayal and, <laughs> and make it with pies and singing and little kids? <laughs> how does that work? It is kind of a delicate balancing act that you really have to believe in in order to really pull off and it's and it's stunning to me that that he managed to do it and it's his first film because this could easily be a disaster but there's something about his the conviction of everybody involved in it that really makes it work like the movie never really got a proper dvd release i don't think and i think it would be interesting to go for people to go back and look at it uh, for as a curiosity item, if nothing else, to see you know Jodie Foster in her early years, and you know, this, I don't I don't know what what happened with the release of this film, but it, it deserves a proper release. Oh, excellent! So, well, really fascinating. I hope get people get a chance to check that out when it's available. With that, he Parker makes one amazing pivot from that to Mm -hmm. get a film that's both more realistic and much, much, much darker than a gangster film with his next movie, Midnight Express, in 
This is a story about an American who is getting caught in Turkey trying to transport drugs out of the country. And he is placed in an increasing set of harrowing situations while having to deal with both the Turkish legal system and then the Turkish prison system. Well, this was an announcement not just of uh, Parker's move into serious uh, filmmaking, but uh, also a script from Oliver Stone, mm-hmm. and which uh, he won an Oscar for, and the uh, performance from uh, Brad Davis, who is is the lead, is just amazing. He he commits to uh, to this role totally, and and there's so many suspenseful and emotional ups and downs. Uh, through this movie, another great uh, supporting performance from uh, John Hurt. It, it, it's really if uh, Bugsy Malone was uh, kind of a, a first movie, a little little bit of a novelty. This is really an announcement of somebody who is here to stay. Yeah, this is definitely showing a director who's like, well, okay, wait a minute, we he's not going to be doing like Benji movies for his career. <laughs> he's going to do something good. And I mean, right from the get-go, that opening scene with him, you know, getting everything together and and trying to get on the plane uh is incredibly suspenseful. It didn't take much too. It's this, this really subtle like the sound the constant sound of a heartbeat going on throughout the first 10 minutes. Yeah. Uh that's really all you kind of need for it. And um I kind of wish that subtlety stuck. I think it's a really well-acted, well-written, well-made film. Unfortunately, the score is by Giorgio Moroder, and I think it's a little overdone, um, which is odd because it won Best Score, but I I found it really distracting. Maybe it just hasn't aged well. Maybe at the time it worked better, um, but I, I I found it a little off-putting. But otherwise, I, th- I think it's I think it's pretty solid. Hmm, that's really interesting that you bring up on the score, which is my favorite part, one of my favorite parts (laughs) of Midnight Express. Um, Part of it is that Parker was trying to make this a more realistic story. It's based off a book Mm -hmm. about a person's real-life harrowing experiences in the Turkish prison system. But the effect that that the score had for me in several sequences is... That it put me into this movie world of pure, pure suspense. I, mm-hmm. I was left while while watching this recently was to get put in like in a Hitchcock world where I was constantly at edge and and I felt the kind of pulsing drone that the score was doing was really effective at putting me in that particular world. So I wasn't getting a sense that I was thinking, well, this is really what's happening. So much as like. Oh gosh, like a Dario Argento movie. <laughs> okay, you know the like it's a case where the cinematic part gave me a, like an emotion apart from the real the realism part, right? And and the film doesn't really adhere too closely to the to the true story. A lot of changes were made, and e- even to the extent that the entirety uh, the entire escape scenes were invented for the film. But what's interesting about it is it does kind of two opposing things at once. Uh, On the one hand, it is this rousing prison break movie in in the tradition of The Great Escape or Escape from Alcatraz and the like. But it's got so much of a darker uh, bent than those films because it's also a character study of uh, somebody who's 
facing inhuman in, uh, tre- treatment, torture yes. in this mm-hmm. prison system, and watching him uh, psychologically be broken down. Now, the, these two inconsistent styles could really undo a lesser film. So I think one of the most impressive things about it is it manages to do both these things well. Right. I mean, it's, this could have easily descended into something like, like say, Bad Lieutenant, if it looked like it was an episode of Miami Vice, right? <laughs> because, yeah, those two, thing, those two parts are not something those would normally connect. But I find they just work wonderfully and... Brad, is what you brought up, the character study of how the suspense, you feel the suspense, or I definitely felt it, but you also feel how the suspense it wears in on the main character, and you see his mental and physical degradation and, and the loss of his um, uh, whatever ideals or hope that he has, it gets just etched away by the tension of the scenes he finds himself in. So it adds this extra layer of depth to the suspense that I found really compelling, even if I wasn't tying it into specific realism. You know? mm. What's cool about how, what the choice that uh, Parker made with this film, and to keep it a, a, a more of a psychological film than a, just an out-and-out escape thriller, was they basically cut the last 15 minutes out of the film. Uh, the movie ends with him walking out of the prison spoiler alert um (laughs) and that just kind of ends right there but there was a whole other 15 or 20 pages written of him getting going to greece and going here and going there and then finally the end parker you mean like to make into the united states yeah it's, it's more like shawshank redemption how he just gets you know keeps going to this place and this place yeah until okay finally but the decision to cut the film where they cut it, I think is really smart. I mean, I think that's really, and he had to fight for that, like really fight for that. The studio was hoping to get more escape footage to make for a better trailer that they can market the film. That's certainly true. And and I would imagine there was probably, they could have put in like a car chase or, or other really tense moments as to get to the border. Right. Right. All those moments were now lost. Yeah. But, hmm. But instead, some of the most memorable scenes are these, close-ups of, of of Brad Davis and John Hurt and, to, to a lesser extent, uh, Randy Quaid, kind of struggling with, you know, that any moment uh, things could go really wrong, thanks to, you know, sadistic uh, prison guard played by uh, Paul Smith very effectively as this huge, brutal guard. And then there's a, a extremely disturbing scene where... Uh, where his girlfriend, uh, Brad Davis's girlfriend, uh, visits him, and he's pretty much been broken down, lost his mind, and she wants to talk to him about the court case and how to get him out. And he is so broken that he can't even communicate with her as a person and insists that she take her top off so that uh, that he can uh, pleasure himself. In uh, But again, this this isn't done erotically at all. It's done incredibly... Darkly and disturbing. Yeah, yeah, it's a really sad scene. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, one of the most, like, right, disturbing and yet emotionally sensible exploitation sequences uh, that's ever been made. Mm -hmm. You... It's clearly like exploitation of people's like most basest needs and desires, but you understand completely what brought 
the, him into this point to to feel that way and and her decision to in fact like you know take take off her top and and press herself against the glass is just so depressing and harrowing and emotionally vulnerable there is eight or nine ways that that could go wrong and yet it's it both works for itself and as part of the movie and I'm a little not sure necessarily if everything goes and connects perfectly. It's a little episodic. It's not like one thing happens and another thing happens. But there are several scenes that are absolute standouts. Like, Colin, you brought up the initial part where he's setting up to have this deal, and the deal goes bad. It is so intensely done. And and what, 30 years before Dunkirk, he (laughs) uses such a great decision to use that heartbeat as yeah. a way of just making tension. And, but it follows soon after. There's a scene where he's being chased by the authorities through the streets of Turkey, which is even better. The, the score just works, to me, just works perfectly in enhancing how, how dangerous and how tense this chase will be. And it goes through all these different streets and narrow alleyways and staircases. That you're, and, and I believe from like five or ten minutes, and you are on the uh, proverbial edge of your proverbial seat throughout. <laughs> we, we need to give Parker credit, and not for the last time, for his ability uh, of world building. And this is something consistent in his work. There is never a point where we do not believe in what we're seeing. He has created an illusion of this prison system, this bizarre environment in which uh, everything you think you know uh, might not be true. And, and, and it doesn't look like other things we've seen on film. It's, it's an original vision, and it's something he'll keep doing again and again. Yeah, and this is a case where like his world building has becomes a little bit of a double-edged sword. Now, I'm not sure how much controversy happened from Bugsy Malone in the idea of like, oh, having kids be gangsters. That's not cool. You shouldn't teach kids that but this movie definitely stirred up a hornet's nest of controversy i mean turkey was furious at the depiction shown in the film so much so that i don't i believe the film was never even shown or not even allowed to be shown in turkey until like 1992 yeah and a part of that is because it is so effective at giving you this world that people assigned a level of believability to it and and tourism to turkey took a hit because people thought oh my god is that what it's really like for an american to be there it's also because of uh, a disturbing but effective speech that oliver stone has brad davis deliver uh in the middle of the film when he finds out his uh sentence has been increased to life and he and the they send him back to court and he has this this monumental uh lashing out at everyone around him, in, you know, including uh, the country itself and the Turkish people, and it's a really ugly speech. Mm-hmm. And Parker has said that it, there's nothing particular about this story that, that is particular to Turkey, that it's a, it's a place that's foreign and that's other. It might have been better uh, as far as avoiding controversy if the country had never been named. Like that particular level of like otherworldliness I was describing for you guys earlier, that to me personally as an American mitigated uh, this per- sense of criticism of that this is actually Turkish prison, actually Turkish justice. It it gave me the sense that yes, this is a dystopian kind of nightmare world, 
but the fact that it's actually named as it, it's based off a book about a person's real life experiences, however fictionalized the movie adaptation became, that's like leads to a really interesting question, which is that how much fealty do you have to like when you make it about a country? How much should you you know like honor and respect this the stuff on um, that you're trying to do? You know, and I think Parker stepped kind of a little bit over that line because Parker and Stone. Parker and I mean, Stone. Stone is no, you know, he's not shy and, about and yet, courting and controversy. That's true. <laughs> and actually, ironically, the thing that makes this a big criticism on the movie is that both Parker, Alan Parker as a director and Stone as a writer they step a little bit over that line, but they use a massive iron boot <laughs> over it in the sense that, like, Stone knows how to make a rousing speech that, like, really gets your blood boiling. And he really does that at the courtroom mm-hmm. speech. Mm-hmm. And Parker is so effective at world building that, like, when you watch it, you just feel so compelled by that world that you're just drawn in. And, and when, since people's experiences with Turkey perhaps were limited at the time... When the what's the most impressionistic thing you get out of Turkey becomes images from that movie, you can see how that can like yeah. affect people's people's attitudes. Sure. Yeah, and it won't be the last time he would do this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. It's an interesting kind of irony how it's his very effectiveness. Yeah. That makes this the criticism on this so particularly um, uh, valid. And his next film made me never want to attend an arts college. And that's it's just as horrifying. I mean, it's really, really awful. Yeah, his next uh, uh, right, his next film being Fame in 1980. Some things you shouldn't get too good at, like smiling, crying, and celebrating. Some people got way too much confidence, baby, baby. It's the st- a look at the struggles of several students of the New York School of the Performing Arts. Um, it goes through their challenges both into and out of that school as they attend the four years um, there as they reach for their goal of appearing in an episode of Law and Order. <laughs> <laughs> well, th- this film, I, I think, has a, a big structural problem because it uh, does take place over the four years, it starts at the audition, uh, year one, two, three, four. And so we see uh, snippets of the lives of these uh, eight students uh, who all have their various talents, whether it be dancing or acting or singing. He's trying to do something very difficult uh, in, in having an ensemble represent a whole, somewhat like Robert Altman does to brilliant effect. That's what Parker's going for here. But the result here is something I think that's too episodic. I'll give you an example. Uh, One of the uh, stronger scenes on its own 
is when uh, Irene Cara's uh, character, who wants to be an actress, uh, go is basically picked up by this sleazy uh, movie producer, and is uh, fooled into doing a uh, a topless scene uh, for for his camera, and it's a pretty devastating scene on its own, but it's not part of anything that the rest of the movie is about. There's nothing that really leads up to it. There's no consequences from it. And I found that this was a a pretty regular thing throughout, is we're seeing all these moments of drama, but nothing that connects into a strong narrative. Yeah, so the movie takes place over four years, um, and it takes about a good 20, 25 minutes before the movie really settles down because the exposition is really clunky. You got multiple characters and multiple storylines and to follow here. And if there's one major flaw the movie has, and the movie's pretty flawed, but it's the major one for me is the cast. Uh it's really hard to watch this movie and escape the fact that these are not very good actors cast in this part in, in this film were they just done as like basically because well, they were talented as singers and dancers I, I, and not I, actors? yeah i think so i mean i really had a hard time feeling sympathetic for any of them and i just didn't i could not connect with any of them and really just didn't find them very believable I I sort of have an allergic reaction to this film because uh, for a personal <laughs> reason because as a kid my one of my sisters loved this movie and played the con- the soundtrack constantly to the point where I'm like give me a break why do we have why do I have to listen to this and then I finally saw the I, I saw the movie pretty at a pretty young age after listening to the soundtrack a oh, hundred times and I actually saw the film in the theater it had like a resurgence or something and I, I hated it even more <laughs> um, so like so like the songs just are I I mean I, maybe they're great songs if I'm not, if I don't have that association with it but um, and it's it's weird. Like the first big musical number takes place about thirty minutes into the film, and it's kind of interesting in that it's somewhere between spontaneity and overly choreographed. Hmm. Uh, and it's a song about hot lunch, so like it feels like it should be in like some kids' bop musical or something like right, that. Like right. it's a, it's, a, it's weird that this song has not really. Uh, caught on and and had like a a reinvention in the in the past few years is just a silly song about hot lunch, but that's all it is. Hot, hot lunch was actually the original title of the film. Oh, was it until really? somebody thought uh, thought better of it? But um, you know, wow. speaking speaking of the title, I <laughs> I do want to dovetail Colin off of what you said uh, with the, the 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 movie's most famous scene of the uh, the title track, Fame, which yeah. uh, most people know is this uh, early 80s uh, Hot Lunch was so close to being the title (laughs) track. (laughs) Um, And here for the first time, I feel, and maybe the only time, I feel uh, Parker really kind of blows it on a musical level Mm -hmm. because the the fame number is set up as uh, the eventual result of this really avant-garde keyboardist oh God. who's yeah. doing his thing and he's way too cool for uh, for the classical music that they're trying to teach him in the school, but he's got his own keyboard-centric ideas. Mm. And what he ends up coming up with is that fame song, which 
the the keyboardist's father is is wants it to encourage him to get his music out there, and so he drives his cab. He's this working class New York guy. Yeah. Drives his cab right in front of the school, puts loudspeakers on his cab, and plays the big fame number. At which point, the and all the students of the school come out into the street for a choreographed dance number, and he stops traffic, and somebody else in traffic decides to pick a fight with the father, and all this stuff is like, what kind, What happened to the movie? Right, right, yeah. It's the one scene that really, if there's one scene that dates this movie, that's the one. Like, that is an 80s musical number where... You know, this music that this guy Bruno created is like, oh, my God, it's amazing. No, it's not. Uh, it's, it's, it's nothing about this this instrumental track that he wrote that would get everybody to go, whoa, like we drop, put your books down. We got to go outside. What is this? And let's sing. And I, I mean, that's great for I mean, I can buy into that for a musical that establishes that kind of aesthetic that where it's like anything can happen in this musical but we're dealing with characters that are dealing with suicide and you know their sexuality yeah Yeah. coming out Mm -hmm. and very serious issues uh throughout a lot of it and so the movie has this kind of very serious tone to it um with moments of comedy also but uh, but the, it's a scene that just it's too it's it's just too old fashioned for a movie that takes place in the gritty New York uh, in 1980. Yeah, I've got good lord, you guys are so I cannot be in more in agreement with you guys. That's like it's literally like watching like a Frederick Wiseman's high school documentary that turns <laughs> into an Elvis movie halfway. Right? Through. Yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> what? the hell? Look, if you want to be an old-fashioned musical where everyone breaks into sound, that's fantastic. If you want to be the kind of musical where the music comes purely from performers, that's fantastic, too. But choose a lane, people. Right. Yeah, yeah. And I think Parker had said that he wanted to make, a like you said, Colin, a special kind of musical or a different kind of musical. And he said he wanted to not move away from this idea of people just spontaneously starting singing for no reason. And having it be the place of the performing arts Mm -hmm. helps you get into that setting. But... Uh, as as you said, Brad, it goes over it goes over the line here. Right now, I should mention there is a musical number I think that really works well, mm. which is the final of mm-hmm. the movie. Uh, I sing uh, the body called, electric. Right, yes. right, and and this is uh, <laughs> the graduation. Um, collection of all the characters uh, doing their final number, and it combines the singers with dancers and the orchestra, and I thought that was a, a, a pretty nice moment, but that wasn't enough to save this one. <laughs> yeah, and it, and it, but this is a movie that, like, refuses to leave my life, I think, and because, like, here I am, here it is again. Like, it annoyed me as a kid. Uh, it annoyed me as a college graduate when I went I went to Columbia College, which is an arts school, and I went in 19... I started going in 1991, and one of the things they said to all the students at their big welcoming thing was, yeah, yeah this, did you see fame? This school is kind of like that. And I'm like, oh, God, no. Oh, are we gonna are we gonna oh, break into song? Are we gonna have to like do I have to compose something? Do I have to learn a dance or something? Oh, it God. it does to performing arts school what Top Gun does to Navy recruitment. Yep. <laughs> and I do think like there is something to be said for the fluidity of how Parker manages to take all these stories uh and kind of 
blend them in and kind of transition in and out of them. It's a hard thing to pull off. Um, but I think he's got, I think he has, he found really good editors. Cause I think as just in terms of pure craft, I think the movie is beautifully shot. I think it's the, the editing is really nice. And um, this is kind of where you see that Parker is really in love with faces. Mm-hmm. Like he loves, especially singing faces, especially choruses. Like he loves close-ups, and he just the way um, you know he's he's frame. He, he's starting to kind of learn learning here. You know, framing shots and and capturing the joy of, on people's faces when they're singing. And um, we're going to see more of that later on a purely technical level i think the movie has merit but i can't stand it i would say that like he manages to do a neat trick with his presentation in that he manages to show depictions of the school and uh 70s new york as both grimy and polished at the same time Mm. it's a kind of an interest an interesting trick uh in terms of like your attitude towards the movie, Colin, I have to just admit a confession here in that I am indisposed almost on a biological level to hate this movie and everyone <laughs> in it because I kind of find the pursuit of fame is a rather shitty pursuit. <laughs> and this was something that I felt even when I had seen the movie when it already came out and it got crystallized to me and the sentiment was crystallized in a wonderful sequence by the comic David Cross off his uh, album like Shut Up You Fucking Baby where he says you know all these people they want to be great stars they want to rule the world they want to live forever and how many people make it to be in Hollywood to be celebrities yeah Uh, per year like eight (laughs) (laughs) well what's funny is that the movie spawned a TV show and actually, there is somebody who went on to fame from from that show, which was uh, Laurie Singer. Hmm. So, um, but I don't think other than Irene Cara, there's really nothing. Nobody you want to watch this film with all these young actors, and you want to think, "Wow, look at all the careers that this movie launched!" But it didn't launch any, and there's a good reason for that. <laughs> it's yeah. kind of funny how like the most famous people who are on there is a are the teachers. Like Anne Mira. All of which are bad. These are horrible teachers at this school. <laughs> well, what do you mean? <laughs> there's a point in which uh, every teacher... There's one funny part in this movie that is, that is really accurate and, and cool. But uh, at the beginning of the film, every teacher is seen saying, oh, you want to be an actor? It's the hardest profession of all. And they cut to the dance teacher. You want to be a dancer? It's the hardest profession of all. Like, they all think they're doing all this great, you know, this teaching yeah. this really hard thing yeah. to get into. And it's mm-hmm. like, well, all of show business is hard to break into. And that's, and you're right about the, sh- the fame, seeking fame thing is being shallow and, and, and it's an annoying basis for a film. You'd be even more annoyed by the TV show. The intro on the TV show had Debbie Allen, okay, another famous alumni right. Right. from that show, uh, telling her students, and this famously, you want here because you want fame. Well, fame costs, and right here is where you start paying. And it's, mm. that's in like the intro in every Where show. you start paying. Yeah. Isn't it a supreme irony that Irene Cara's character in her uh, trip to the, the person to take topless photos, she ironically has the big, biggest training in terms of what it takes to be right. famous, yeah, right. <laughs> especially these days. Right. Yeah. I mean, the other influence of this movie, which would have been huge when it was made, is a chorus line, the the stage mm-hmm. uh, right. musical, not not the film adaptation. But uh, I feel like like if you were looking for this kind of thing 
done correctly, uh, find a production of A Chorus Line because everything that this film gets wrong, A Chorus Line gets right. I have never seen a chorus line, but maybe I could stand to I could stand to do it in that like right now I personally have doubts of this thing ever being correctly done for mm-hmm. me, but that could totally be a fault on my on my biases and so on. And and I'm also very curious to those listening that if you guys are fame fans, if you find something remarkable about the movie, I would really like to hear it. Because it was I, a hit. It was yeah. a big hit in the day. Mm-hmm. It won the Academy Award it. for Best Song, and, and I think it was nominated for editing, I think. Uh, so, like I said, this is not a bomb by any stretch. It's just not very good. For his next film, once again, like Parker makes a very dramatic pivot into actual drama with his film Shoot the Moon in It's the story of the Dunlap family, uh, who a family of a mother, father, and four children who are going through a marital breakup. So the story goes about how they have to make adjustments out in their lives. How do they go through this process while still dealing with their kids' issues and house issues and development work issues and so on? Yeah, so this is a film that I've seen many, many times. It's um, and. It is my favorite Alan Parker film uh, for a lot of reasons. Um, I am kind of a bit of a masochist when it comes to movies about relationships and that I prefer the ones that are about breakups than are about you know romance. Oh, okay. Or at least I was for a long period of time, uh, like within the last 10 or 12 years. So Shoot the Moon, I think, is is one of the best breakup movies ever. And I and and I had this thing, and I know a couple other people who do this too, on Valentine's Day, and you sit at home and bitterly watch breakup movies, <laughs> like War oh. of the Roses and stuff like that, <laughs> uh, just to sort of combat the feeling of loneliness I, and I have, isolation and, and kind of revel in it, you know? <laughs> I have to quickly jump in to point out that you um, uh, made a, ver- a short film which has an awesome title on that concept called Breakup Date. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. Well, it's actually not a short. It's a feature. Uh, it's a documentary about uh, breaking up and going back out in the dating world. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, th- this is a subject that kind of resonates with me. And, 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 there's, and I always go back to Shoot the Moon. I think it's devastating and beautiful and um and i think it's his most i, I think it's uh, there's a a, a a quiet poetry to it that i don't think he would ever have again i i feel like when i watch it i'm watching a personal film that was every single scene was taken with great care i love the single note piano score that he has on here I love his use of music. I love the use of pop songs in it in the background. Um, some of it, is, some of which is just haunting. Um, I love 
Albert Finney's performance. This is probably one of my very favorite Albert Finney performances. Um, and Diane Keaton too. I think this is one of her best films ever. And I think his, you know, the work, the kids are all terrific. Like, I really believe this family exists. I really believe that I'm watching a really real family and I'm like kind of eavesdropping. And I just think he did such a great job. I mean, of bringing this family to life and not over explaining everything. We don't really know what started this divorce. When we come into this movie, like the, the parents are already like separated. We know that dad is having an affair, but we don't learn a whole lot about what caused him to stray. And, and that's the thing is like, I don't feel like I need to know that much. And then when you bring in Peter Weller as the other guy and, Karen Allen is the other woman. You know, I like that she's kind of flaky in a way. She's kind of new agey. Um, and then Peter Weller is like a little too perfect as this kind of working class guy who's going to put in a tennis, install a tennis court in their old house. I don't think there's a bad scene in this whole film. I Every time I watch it, I'm kind of, I, 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 yeah. I think it's a remarkable movie. And you're, you're definitely in the majority on this, uh, mm-hmm. talking to people and, and looking online. This is a film that strikes people very personally and is, is, is very uh, loved. A lot of people have a long history with this film. I just uh, saw it. And there were definitely some very affecting scenes. I thought the, chil- the child actors were wonderful. But there were also some scenes that kind of took me out of the film. And uh, that might have started with where they, uh, the couple start uh, breaking plates mm-hmm. one after another on the ground. Another scene in where they basically, in a restaurant, get into such a huge fight that the, the rest of the patrons have to practically break it up. And <laughs> I won't have what she's having. Right, exactly. <laughs> and, and so I, I'm just wondering how much might be too much for mm. this because for me i thought some sometimes it went a little closer to the torrences than the kramers <laughs> <laughs> right the kramers being like kramer versus kramer right. hopefully yeah, not yeah, the yeah. not the cosmo kramer no, 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 there no. is a bunch <laughs> of destruction that happens in the film i mean yeah if i were to take a scene and say which you know which is the weakest scene in the film i think the restaurant scene mm-hmm. would be the weakest but I like that scene because you get a sense of who this couple was because once that fight calms down, they kind of like share a moment where they're laughing about it and you can kind of see like what chemistry they used to have before all this went down. You can see like, oh, this is how they became a couple or this is they somehow they work well in this kind of situation together. You know, we get a sense of, um, Wow, then maybe they could get back together. Maybe they just needed this outburst uh, to sort of get things back on track, which I know happens. Um, Do you want these guys to get back together? I I'm not sure. I mean, I I, I don't. It's it's hard to say. And and I but I don't think I'm supposed to watch the movie hoping they get back together. I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to be hoping for for them. I guess at the very least, uh, you you hope that they come to an understanding before any more kids get hurt, you know. <laughs> you know but of course, that doesn't happen. Or you just hope that they can, you know, just like with any divorce, you hope that it could be settled amicably. Uh, but I think the movie does a really good job of showing just how hard that is uh, in this big house that you know that's isolated 
the Torrance uh, factor that yeah, put right, that, uh, and, 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 and that he's up. a writer. He's a writer, right. so there's that yeah. angle too. Hmm. <laughs> Both the, I think this came out in '81, I think, so a year after The Shining. Right, yeah. It's '82. Oh, '82. But, but, but this is like part of like a whole trend at the time that was spurring up about like dysfunctional families. Yeah. Starting, I think Kramer versus Kramer was patient zero of the whole of this kind of subgenre. Ordinary people, I think, also has some t- take to it. But you can. As we're discussing, you can kind of probably fit The Shining. Mm, yeah, sure. In that sense. I also found myself reminded of a movie we previously uh, covered uh, on the show, which is uh, Modern Romance, the Albert Brooks film, because mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. one of the aspects of that is that Brooks was the one who initiated the breakup, yet he seems the most tortured about it. And that seems to be echoed uh, here because uh, what we see of the disintegration of the family is Albert Finney's having an affair is Albert Finney telling his wife she's he's leaving her but then you know when it comes to trying to move on from there uh the Diane Keaton character seems better positioned to move on with her life where Albert Finney is lashing out in in so many different ways mm-hmm. and 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 at so many different levels, some of which to the point, you know, become psychotic. Yeah. At the movie ends on our image that could very well be compelling where a figure on the ground is reaching up towards another and it's it stops at a very nice moment where mm-hmm. you don't know if the grasp will be, you know, reciprocated, if someone will also reach out, you know. Mm-hmm. Or at least it would be compelling to me if I didn't think that both these people should run away from each other as fast as humanly possible. (laughs) This is a case of two people who have just collide with dysfunction in every encounter that they do. You're basically have Diane Keaton's character is someone who's very like prone to like both withdraw and passively have things like happen to her. And, Colin, to your point that it's one of her best performances is I agree with that in the sense that like Diane Keaton is not a good actress to me and this is probably one of the better ones of her usual levels of acting ability. She I think she just came from like Reds which I found her performance pretty intolerable where she would alternate between having a blank expression on her face and then screaming in agony at uh, at Warren Beatty and here she's just passive to a fault and when she is she does not deliver any nuance to how she relates to Peter Weller's character to me she just basically has this uh is skipping away like a little girl whenever he's around he's around her to a to, to what came across to me as like a parodic thing well she feels attractive again like she her husband just is cheating on her and it just dev- it's too so devastating that you know ask any buddy who's in a been in a long marriage and goes through you know has like three or four kids and their husband starts cheating on him you know the the idea of that is just uh you know it's just crushing and it and it and messes with your self-esteem sure so like when when a a rugged guy a rugged working class good-looking younger guy you know is is featuring uber wasp peter weller as a redneck yeah is uh, and he's you know, clearly showing an interest in this single mom, 
how is she supposed to react? You know? Well, she, I think she's not. She, her reactions, how Diane Keaton depicts them, is in the, of a girlish, uh, infantile level. Like she's almost doing one step away from skipping around in her petticoat. And Finney, to me, like he's shown he's been a re- can be a really good actor in certain roles, but there was always this kind of level where I was watching it and I saw that like there was this evil gleam in his eye, something like where if. At the end of something he said, he would follow it up by going, like Igor or Frankenstein. I wouldn't have been a, I wouldn't have been a bit surprised. Like his level of man- maniacal, like overreaction, just was. I cannot say I, it's random. I, it's I, based I, on his motive. It's based on his motivations. But yeah. he goes way over the top, um, especially at the end, which is I, that ending scene where he basically gets in a car and nearly kills a bunch of people and destroys a tennis court is just like to me come came across as nothing is so much as just the reason that you you know whenever dale earnhardt gets a divorce proceeding you make sure it's in a tall building you know what no, i'm no, saying no, no watch that scene again watch albert finney in that scene again and he is seething i mean he is i mean it, if you're watching the film for the first time it seems like you 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 are fooled into thinking Oh, he's he's coming around. He's accepting this new life that she has with this new guy. But and then the car comes crashing, and it seems kind of out of nowhere, or, or it's a surprise. Maybe watch the oh, scene. It's a surprise. Watch the scene again. Watch the scene again because when you know it's coming and you watch you watch his performance, you can tell he is really seething. But I think he does a masterful job of concealing that and. You know, trying to show, you know, have a sense of grace and and forgiveness, but you can just tell like there's all of this is coming at him. Like he's seeing this tennis court. Tennis court. It's here. It's on his house. It's on his property. This is this is taken over his life. And I think it is established because halfway through the film, when he breaks into his own house and goes after his daughter, who's been shunning him this whole time. He has that sort of animal rage, the animalistic rage that, you know, that we didn't really know was there, but now we know. And so he's capable of doing that once. He's capable of doing something even more so on a grander scale later. And I think think Finney does a great job of bringing multiple layers to this character. He's a warm father when he, you know, he probably was a really great husband for a while. He's a good boyfriend at the at the very least with karen allen uh and he's really Mm. he's really good he's really good with his kids and shows a lot of care and uh and i but he does have a breaking point and i think albert finney does a really great job of conveying that yeah i in a weird way as his like breaking point to me almost comes across as effective as uh jack nicholson's "Quote unquote breaking point in The Shining, which is a sense that he doesn't have one, or one that was like um, happened years before we're wa- the events that we're watching in the movie. Like someone who behaves in that plate breaking way, and he shows that he is already has this total like hair trigger through some agony that he's already dealing with. In fact, I think it even op- the film opens with him just literally having a breakdown and going out and calling his uh, girlfriend out on the phone. Well, so he's, he's not having a breakdown; he's just calling his girlfriend on the phone. Which his girlfriend also points out that like, why are you calling me here? You should call from a gas station. Mm. So he's already he's already lost it to, yeah. to me. Which, to be fair, that's that's a perfectly fair you know 
way of showing that, but like I, I don't see the disintegration there, except I see the remnants of a disintegration for yeah. it. And with regards to that scene, the, yeah. the scene of the car, the mm. car crash, I rewound it a couple, several times because the what, what the fuckery of it just blew me away. I was like, <laughs> the first time I saw it, I was just started to think of the Blues Brothers chase theme happening. It was, like, it was so different than what was happening in this, what was an ordinary drama, you know, turns mm. into a demolition derby. But then, to your point, he is clearly, yes, he's clearly angry at the very beginning of that. But to me, I was jarred by the scene immediately preceding it where he is trying to be kind to his, uh, his daughter who is his daughter who is run off. And like he gives her a, a typewriter, which notably is one of the things that gets kicked at the end of the at the end of the movie. And he is accommodating to her and sensitive to her needs to go in so that some. If a guy like that who is able to behave in that kind of a manner gets that enraged by f- seeing a tennis court, like the dude's already too cr- too nutty for me for for to me to be fully engaged in him as a as a person. Well, pretty- and and mm-hmm. I want to also add that like the tennis court thing also adds to something which is a problem to me with many like biopics and other things where people find themselves in an event and then they're incredibly shocked even though logically speaking the guy knows the tennis court is being built. He knows that this, like, Peter Weller has been going on over and over again. And just the, the but now that you physically see it, it's the thing that sends it over. I didn't, I didn't find that. Well, you like, see it, you see it as, because there are now people, there are all these strangers there who are enjoying it, who are, like, celebrating it and having fun with it. And it's just, it's this territorial thing that he feels. Yes, um, that's certainly true. And one of the things I love about this scene is the use of music. Um, I love this song. I know you hate Bob Seger, but I love the hate. I love the use of the song. I love that the song that's playing is still the same. And just like, you know, nothing has really changed. It's still the same. And I, there's another great scene between, with, with, between Diane Keaton and Peter Weller where, they're, where he, they haven't quite started dating yet but they're in the room they're in the, the the living room together and the song that's playing is uh don't play with me because you're playing with fire is, is that a rolling, the Stone rolling stones yeah yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. yeah and mm-hmm. i just i think that's a brilliant touch uh because <laughs> that's clearly what he's doing he's playing with fire by jumping into this relationship bob seeger has a, shares a particularly very interesting quality with the director of our previous podcast bong jun ho in that there really isn't any subtext to the kind of no, thing. He makes this movie called "Still the Same," and it's exactly about things still being the same. It's, it's 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 a I think it's a great song to use in a weird way to build suspense if you know what's coming. Hey, Brad, what have you you've been trying to <laughs> interject in here? Well, I, I was listening to the the your back and forth, which which was wonderful about the uh, the ending scenes and kind of the believability of Alpha Albert Finney's character, and, and I think it kind of comes down to the idea of you know who do we sympathize with this within this film, and I, I think as long as the answer is not Albert Finney, <laughs> the movie has its way of working. Because I'm not, yeah, I'm not defending his actions. Right, I'm <laughs> I'm explaining that. Right, because because really, childish. if you do look at the film from the point of view of the children, then I think it becomes much more poignant. 
and uh, especially the older daughter who's just devastated by that. It's one of the most believable portrayals of being uh, a child of divorce yeah. uh, that, that I've mu- seen. As, it's a, mm-hmm. The movie is as much about her as it is the two of them. Right, and, and I think it succeeds on that level. I, you know, I, I also have, I guess I share some of the problems uh, with the, the casting of, uh, of Keaton and Finney, but then, I, uh, then there's also some, this very strange piece of dialogue I have to uh, bring up that took me out of the film a bit. It's when the kids are at Vinny and, and his girlfriend Karen Allen's place, and they're uh, tucking them in. And the, one of the kids goes, uh, "Are you going to make love to my dad?" Yeah. And then she's like, "Yes." And then, unfortunately, the script goes on to have the kids say, "What's it like to make love to our dad?" <laughs> and she goes, "It's like ice cream." Yeah. And I'm kind of like, "Was this necessary?" <laughs> yeah, and the ice cream reference actually gets played back at the restaurant argument scene. They're like, you've had so much ice cream with that, Sarah. <laughs> like, yeah, two scoops. <laughs> um, <laughs> as you were saying, Brad, you're, the value that you can put on this film is the you can come from how well you're willing to relate to Keaton and Finney's characters, how much you're willing to emotionally invest on them and, and hope that they do reach this particular uh, accommodation. But as, as you've seen from our discussion, <laughs> like depending upon your attitude on there, your mileage on uh, shooting the moon may vary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the grasshopper-like jumping that Parker's done across genres manages to continue with his next film, Pink Floyd, The Wall, in 1982. story based upon the great album by Pink Floyd. Um, it's the story of a rock star who's holed up in his room in a near catatonic state. Uh, through the music of the Pink Floyd's legendary album, we go through events of his past to see what got him into that state and what could get him into an even darker future. This is by far my favorite of, of Parker's films, but it also needs to give credit as a collaborative piece because it is based on the uh, phenomenal uh, album The Wall, which in and of itself is so vivid in its lyrics and its music that, uh, that you could, just by listening, envision an entire film of it. But what, what Parker does, uh, with the help of uh, Gerald uh, Scarf, who has uh, developed the uh, uh, animated sequences, is create a world that we have never seen. This is one of those movies that are singularities. There's nothing like it. I mean, certainly it it was influenced uh, by Ken Russell's uh, Tommy just as a way to 
bring a rock opera to the screen. But this one takes that concept uh, so much further into surrealism, into psychology. What we have here is a, a movie that has is not bounded by chronology in any way. We are in the main character's head throughout almost the entirety of the film, and we learn about his life out of order. We learn about uh, his addictions, his obsessions, his insanity, his madness, and we learn it, and it's done through, yes, the lyrics, but also visual storytelling that just uh, defines what the medium can do. I have to go and agree with you completely on that idea of how this is a collaboration, but not just among people who collaborate to make a movie, but how literally different media collaborate to make a whole cinema experience, you know? Sometimes I've, like, described that when you have a song that's so great, so magnificent, that the instruments that are used, the vocals that are used, the, in fact, the very notes themselves like fall away and you just have a pure experience through sound. And this is a film which manages to use like a great out bedrock album and then, and then great direction by Parker and animation. And it works in a level where all of these things just combine and to a wonderful singular whole. Yeah, and it's it's almost a miracle that it turned out as good as it did because these three were not did not get along when mm. making this film <laughs> because you're dealing with three people who are used to getting their own way. This is a really amazing piece of work that uh, you know found its way into mainstream theaters when it came out. It wasn't just an art house exclusive or anything like that. I mean, that's how popular this album was. It's a very literal interpretation of this album. It is kind of spelling it out for us, but in a way that is has its own poetry to it. I mean, it is uh, you know the going where they choose to go into animation um, and then back into live action and then scenes with no music. It's just the story being told. Yeah, uh, I just think is is really amazing. Uh, I think my favorite scene, my favorite sequence is probably a lot of people's favorite sequence is another brick in the wall. Yes. And it, <laughs> I remember I saw that scene on Siskel and Ebert when I was a kid and it sort of informed my view of what school was from then on. I was like, yeah, that's kind of mm -hmm. what it feels like. Can, can we, you put the guys from fame into that process? <laughs> right. <laughs> um, Interesting side note I've got to say about Shoot the Moon. Uh, at one point, the kids are singing the song Fame in the car. And then oh, another really? and another scene you see in the kid's bedroom has a Pink Floyd the Wall poster up in her bedroom. Part of the so, uh, Alan Parker cinematic universe. Right, exactly. <laughs> he really is the perfect director for this kind of film. I mean, it is it is dark and it is musical. One of the things that I think is... Uh, very apparent in Parker's work and one of the things that kind of makes him an auteur is a lot of his films are about imprisonment uh, either figuratively or literally. Sometimes it's a literal prison like Midnight Express or Come See the Paradise and sometimes it's figurative like it is here in The Wall where he's just imprisoned by himself, by his own inner demons mm -hmm. uh, his relationship with his mother, his dead father, his girlfriend cheating on him and all that other stuff. Um and just being, you know, in a wall. 
imprisoned <laughs> in a literal wall uh, or figurative wall. And um, and I think I'm not surprised that it, this is going to be a movie that all the three of us are going to be <laughs> on the same page on. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's beautiful and cinematic and. Um, I, I love watching it every time, but at the same time, I'm like, the last time I watched it, which was about a month ago, uh, when it was over, it was the first time I had watched it in like 15 years. And I was like, I went on Facebook and I'm like, I just watched Pink Floyd, the wall for the first time in 15 years. Somebody tell me a joke. (laughs) (laughs) So bummed out right now. Actually, that was one of Roger Waters criticisms was he, he said that the, it had, uh, no humor. Which he well, thought there should have been some, no. but but, but yeah. I, I do have to say that if you listen to the album aside from the movie, there's not a lot of laughs in no. that. No, like what did he? He didn't write any humor, <laughs> and that's the thing. What I find about so ridiculous about his commentary track when he's ripping on Alan Parker's take on it, it's like, dude, you wrote this, right? <laughs> we don't need no thought control. Is a laugh riot yeah, for one right, thing. Yeah. But then there is beauty, in it. Mm-hmm. and that's one of the genius things about both the album and the movie about how something can be beautiful and yet dark strange and yet compelling and it shift and it shifts on you so it's almost so dependent upon your perspective like like the song mother and the depiction of it in the movie is so amazing because what comes from his sense of walling off himself is his mother's affection and his mother's desire that that she, he does not come to harm. You know, this incredibly positive and worthwhile sentiment is the very thing that cripples him, you know? Mm-hmm. That's a really amazing insight. And the amount of storytelling that even goes into that one song, uh, Mother, is pretty stunning because not only does it establish... Uh, the overbearingness of his own mother, but it creates a direct correlation between his mother and his wife yes. and, mm-hmm. and his wife leaving him and uh, taking on uh, uh, an activist lover. And right. all throughout, we're still, you know, he's still haunted by uh, the ghost of his father killed in World War II. And yeah. all these narrative things, which, you know, so many movies you know, could literally take an hour. All happens in the course of this one song. Yes. I mean, right. When when he says that poignant last line of like, mother, why does it have to be so high? I mean, mm-hmm. that's such so amazing because like, but who built the wall, right? Yeah. Who's, who's quote unquote mm-hmm. fault, you know, whose fault is it? And in the same way about those wartime experiences, it that provides some really rich material upon the, the later fascistic, oppressive events that happen that happen or quote unquote happen later in the movie. What drives those impulses, you know, and what drives this sense of violence and I guess the loss and isolation? Like, I want to go back, Colin, to what you said on on like the sense of imprisonment is so yeah, that's so true, and it also harkens to something that Parker also does. That seems to come through his films, or, or some of his films, manifest a sense of isolation. You know, obviously, Midnight Express has that in Spades, but but you look at the couple also in Shoot the Moon, and where's the friends? Where's the mm-hmm. extended family? Where's the where's the workplace? Mm-hmm. Where's the environment? These guys are trapped in their own world, and like that 
like to Brad to your point about their isolated house, you yeah. know. And there's so many scenes where he's people are alone on boats or walking alone through fields. Mm-hmm. That's a sensibility that Parker, good lord, he's able to brilliantly evoke it in those films. And the wall is just wonderfully manifest. Yeah. I find also that it's a gold. I mean, it's a goldmine of these like psychological ideas and insights and concepts. You know, like the way like Brad, you were saying how it plays with chronology. In a way that it took until Nolan for it worked. It works wonderfully. It bounces across these different eras, and you don't feel dis. You don't feel any more sense of disjointedness except how it relates to the character. And that's partially because we have a fully existent uh, soundtrack to guide us through. So you know, yes. uh, Parker literal, is. It, I just have to add. It's mm-hmm. literal, like the Colin was saying, he's literally very faithful to a material, right. but that this material is already so rich that he broad draws it out. Exactly. He's advantaged by having this great work to base his great work on, but the visuals do go to the to the next level because, you know, you just mentioned uh, Nolan, and there was uh, a scene that takes place in the war uh, on the beach where you see uh, dead soldiers yeah. buried in the, partially buried in the sand, and I'm looking at this scene, looking at the composition and just how how uh, effective uh, a scene is. I'm thinking this is the kind of thing you would also see in Dunkirk. This is visual yeah. filmmaking at its best. And then just just when you you know when you're amazed at that level, then the animation comes in. And I don't think yes. it could be exaggerated. I mean, I, uh, uh, just how unique, original, and effective this animation is. There is a uh, quote unquote love scene that takes mm-hmm. place yes. between. Uh, two flowers which form into male and uh, female sex organs and morph into other things. This, uh, This scene says so much about the character's attitude towards sex with just abstract animation. Yeah, it is yeah, that is just magnificent. I, I'm I'm I am a fan of animation from way back. I love how animation opens up all these possibilities that you can just express through your through drawing and and how there's like low, no limits to what you can express and that sequence in particular, but all throughout is like just shows how transformative like uh, an event can be to give you a whole different perspective at, at times during that animated sequence the the sex scene the it flowers become um, genitals become monsters become people become hair become water and yeah. and back again and and you so get that sense of how you know the the rage and passion and wonder and and um, desire are all mixed together in this person that you're watching. Yeah, it's I mean it's a great use of kind of free association, and I, I I I'm glad you brought up the sort of the chronology thing because it just and the imprisonment. Um, I want, so I want to go back to that a little bit. Uh, the him being imprisoned, uh, you know, by all these things that are cause this wall to come up. Uh, it's so tragic how he breaks out of that prison by becoming this uh, monster, this skinhead Nazi mm-hmm. kind of yeah. you know demagogue, uh, which is just and which is just so tragic. But that's 
shown, like that character is introduced right at the beginning of the film. Yes. When you're not really sure who it is that you're watching. Yeah. I mean, if you know the album, you probably get you get it. But like, imagine somebody watching this thing cold, not really knowing the album. Which I was, by the way. Okay. So, what did you think when you saw that uh, at the beginning? Or- I was, I, I was, um, I felt I had this feeling that, like Brad had mentioned earlier in our in our um, talk today about like. That it was an effective sketch of like putting up putting up this world, you know, mm. or saying that like the, or giving a sense of the range of this world. And we're looking at the scope from the earliest war scenes to some sort of dystopian future. Yeah, and here's the kind of the end. Here's kind of the end points. Right. But I did not realize that that in fact was was uh, uh, the character played by Geldof, okay. our main character. Well, until, it's, yeah. It's such an autobiographical piece uh, for Waters, hmm. and what. He was uh, trying to do with with the album, and then uh, was carried out with the movie. Was look at the idea of a modern rock concert as something where people lose their individuality. The the, the w- Waters' original inspiration for the album was uh, his own encounter with a fan who uh, tried to uh, get up on stage and Waters just spit on him. Wow. And he realized, well, a wall has been built between me and my audience, which is exactly who I'm trying to connect to. And so the fascism element uh, to the film does a wonderful analogy with with the idea with pink as a rock star but there's also just a quick moment that ties everything together when you see the uh the skinhead fascists uh all of a sudden don the masks of the school children mm-hmm. uh and become yeah. faceless and and again with the, with the, what this uh film is so good at doing is connecting all these different elements uh into one whole piece absolutely i this is this just just a movie that we could just like honestly we could study it to death and give those like roger ebert like (laughs) frame by frame things because over the course of this very experimental movie you're getting a lot of creative unexpected choices from the direction to the performance to the animate animation and it's astounding how much of this just works, you know? Like the um like this for one thing, I have to just say this is this album or this this cinema experience is one of the greatest examples of the depth of like someone's introspection that I've ever I've ever seen. I know I don't know of an album that is so self-involved like it, but I want to. Mm-hmm, I I, de- mm-hmm. I definitely I definitely want to. Just like Every sequence of Mother, for example, that whole that whole sequence is like the choices of when he's when he's thinking of protection and it cuts to this war footage, but it totally fits because it's it's violence that he's being that he's being protected against. And when it finally gets the the, the climax of the song and he's finally reaching a descent, Parker does a brilliant move of having him like because he's floating in the water and yeah. it has him descend. Then the camera pans to fade to him descending again and again and again mm-hmm. and again. This feeling that he's in this pool. It's like just just this water this endless waterfall of descent into like depression and isolation you know and 
That sequence has more insight in any 30 seconds than the entirety of Night of Cups, which was exactly the same <laughs> subject, right down to the fact of Amalek's overuse of the word mother. <laughs> it works perfectly here. You know, and the animation, just not just in the flowers, but time and time again, like figure like birds become statues become buildings like pools become uh, pools become a hair become air the hammer as a symbol for fascism is so powerful amazing yeah. and yeah. how it's walking on stilts right mm-hmm. and the way it uses the wall like one what we come to think of as one of the most stationary things that don't move and blocks people, but it's a source of motion through the animation. It mm-hmm. cuts through the landscape. It destroys buildings in half. It literally runs over people, and people's faces are screaming through it. You know? That, those ideas, those really basic concepts that we have just get like completely like reevaluated. And, and it does something that like I think the greatest art really uh, can do when it's done well, and I think it's done spectacularly here, it like ten, it's like meat tenderizer for your brain, at least for me. Like you, it activate or it activates your soul and lets you just think and dream and wonder and make these connections and put make you try to be like more thoughtful and more realizing on different perspectives, you know. And uh, like that just becomes a triumph for me on this on this film. Yeah, and I think I, I think some of my favorite moments of this movie are really just the scenes of no music. Mm-hmm. Um, I really love the scene with the boy comes home and just kind of goes through his goes in the closet goes through his father's things yeah. and it kind of takes a while for the music to kick in there um i love the scene where i mean this isn't really it's kind of a musical scene but kind of not uh towards the end after all the fascism all after the trial and everything and he's just alone in this like i think it's a, ba- a bathroom stall singing to himself and there's this haunting echo of everything he's singing. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I'd love the final shot. I think the final shot is beautiful where it's just, it's just these kids and people going through all this rubble, this wreckage, yeah. uh, you know, just pouring, uh, all these Molotov cocktails empty. Yeah. And, um, you know, there's so many ways you can interpret that final shot of the kid just pouring out the, you know, the, the, the Molotov. Um, well, I think to me, uh, that, that ending point is I took it in, a, in one of the sweetest, most charming ways anti-war statements ever made because yeah. I believe he, he pulls out the towel then he sniffs the... Mm-hmm. and then he just has ew yeah. expression mm-hmm. on his face. Right. Just such a small moment but what a great repudiation right. of all the desolation that we've seen earlier in the course of the film but at the same time it doesn't wrap things up in a bow yeah for it you know it, how untrue would a film be that attempts to delve so deeply into someone's psychology and inner demons to actually provide an answer mm-hmm. and this this film resists that it ends uh, you know on that wonderful quiet and beautiful moment but what it doesn't do is take us back to Pink as a character and say this is how he'll end up. It's something we we don't get to know, and and that I think is the strength of the film. Well, it leads me to ask a question for you guys: in that, like, what do you think about like the fact that a movie which 
can, you can so clearly interpret that this is a person in his own head, what he, how he remembers the past, how he imagines a dark future. So what do you guys think on the idea that, like, for it's something about him, but he's not in the last scene. He isn't even close to the last scene. There's nothing yeah. even a surrogate for him. I'm, I'm not sure psychologically that's quite how it works. I think you should have been manifested even as, like, a silhouette of pink on a wall somewhere. <laughs> that somewhere he... I mean, the only way I could take it is that he is completely immolated and he doesn't exist anymore, well, which is, again, weird for being his own head. <laughs> well, the opening shot of the film is just this hotel hallway that the camera's yeah. down really low and it just slowly pans in while we hear a Billie Holiday song. Yeah. And we see a maid coming out and who's vacuuming. And, um, and then that's what takes us to this character. Um, instead of starting in on him, you know, zooming in, you know, dialing in on his face while he's got that cigarette with the long ash coming out, that would right. have been too obvious. But I think I, I think this is way more effective. So the movie starts indoors and ends outdoors with everybody picking up the, you know, in this nice starts indoors in this nice clean sterile environment. Everything's nicely arranged in rows. You know, these it's this ho- the hotel hallway. Um, Super Brazil-like move, by very the way. much so. <laughs> and the movie, and you know, the final shot is rubble and wreckage, and everybody just kind of piling through it. So and, I think and, and his childhood. I mean, the yeah. final shot is not is in right at just after World War Two, mm-hmm. and so you know we end not with his. Uh, trying to uh, spell out what his future is going to be and how he recovered from his overdose or or any of that, but we end with his with, with this vivid memory uh, of childhood. Yeah. Oh, was there but the kid at the very end that is that that's not the young pink, is it? I don't, it's, it's I some, never, it looked, I it never came across like it was it, a different person. Yeah, I don't think child. it's the, I don't think no, it was. No, but it was but it would have been the, in in the period where he it, would have been a child. You know what though? As as we, you guys are talking, it I did not know what era that was, but now as I'm remembering the scene, it's coming back to me that it is from his World War. It's from a World War II remnant. Right. When I first saw, when I saw it, I was unsure as to whether this was the remnants of World War II or the remnants of the fascistic stuff that happens hmm. earlier. So I didn't know what that time period is. I, I mean, I no, I'm with you, Al. I, I, I was kind of interpreted it that way too. I, okay. But I, I think it could go either way. Yeah. I, I always read it as uh, as as a post war scene. Mm. Yeah, yeah, mm. but but the way you just Colin, the way you describe the contrast is, oh. it, I find just it's actually kind of amazing because ultimately, how do you write? Pink's not in the beginning, and he, I mean his character's not there at the beginning, present in the beginning. He's not present at the end. Maybe this is like the transition point, our gateway into his head mm-hmm. and our gateway out of his head. Mm-hmm. And I, I have a crazy theory I want to run by you is that the fact that it's a child that's not him, a younger version of him, that's his rosebud. Hmm. That's the thing, the innocence upon like the violence of his history that he wants to purge and he was longs for but mm-hmm. can't reach. I like maybe, that. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe that's maybe that's the way of looking at it. But one thing I can definitely add is just say to I guess sum up on it is that this is a movie that just rewards yeah. repeated viewings. I mean obviously these are songs that have stood the test of time and you can listen to the songs over and over. But Time and time again, including Colin, to your point about like how Parker makes choices about when to use silence and when to use quiet mm-hmm. to open up the story. 
he's there's so many interesting decisions you can like delve in on this about and and see and think about and and feel and ponder upon this film and it leads to just new stuff and is more fulfilling the more you watch it so i at least for me i can't i i can't recommend this enough Feelings we get out of out of uh, Pink Floyd, The Wall, just can connect in very interesting ways in his next film, Birdie, in 1984. Um, it's about two young friends, Alfonso and Birdie, who are growing up in 1960s New Jersey. And the film goes and shows them after they've had traumatic experiences while during the Vietnam War. And after this, like Alfonso visits Birdie in a military mental ward, and, and Birdie is a near catatonic state there. And the film wants us to look at if Alfonso's care and his talk and their reminiscences about their shared past can uh, get Bertie out of his, um, uh, quote unquote eggshell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is an odd film. Um, and it's kind of a, when it came out in 1984, I remember it kind of came and went pretty quickly and it didn't, it, it, uh, I remember Roger Ebert was a huge fan of it, and um, it, it kind of played at an art house, a couple art houses for a couple weeks, and then just disappeared. And uh, when you watch it today, I mean, it is a, a weird hybrid of sorts. I mean, it is a coming-of-age film. It's also a Vietnam film, uh, and it's also a you know movie about madness, and uh, it's at times a comedy, and. I mean, it's really hard to balance those things out. And Parker isn't always successful at it, but I always can't help but admire the attempt. Um, And I think I finally saw it uh, when I finally started getting into Peter Gabriel and uh, all his music. And I saw, oh, he did the score? Oh, I want to see this now. And um, that's both a kind of a plus and kind of a minus uh, in the case of this film. I mean, I love Peter Gabriel. I love his music, all of it, uh, or most of it, I should say. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, um, but, and I love his music in this film. I just think it's a little overdone, which I've said about Midnight Express, so maybe you guys disagree <laughs> with me. I, I have a lot of problems with this movie. It, it drives me a little crazy, mm-hmm. but the, 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 the saving grace for me to kind of hang on to, to keep from falling completely into Birdland is the, uh, is that score, which especially if uh, you know, Peter Gabriel's music really well, you, you recognize songs that he's right, borrowing he, from, right? He's, yeah. yeah, he took some in and it's just, uh, it's just a very powerful, um, part of a film that that for me seems all over the place um i am i have no problem with films about insanity about about madness but i have a lot of trouble getting on board when the uh, manifestation of that insanity is something so quirky and twee as a guy who is just constantly obsessed with birds and we spend so much of the film 
you know, bef- in the flashbacks before he's in the asylum with him and his pet birds, describing his obsessions with birds, you know, putting him, you know, building bird cages, doing bird things, creating fake bird wings that uh, in a in a concept I thought worked much better in uh, Brewster McCloud, which is more of a, a farce, but. And then finally, when he when you get into the asylum and he's as uh, the Nicholas Cage character says, "Well, it looks like you're you're a bird now," and there's a, just a point at which I wasn't on board anymore. Um, and, and it might have been all the scenes with his little yellow bird who he saves from a cat, but uh, which is and, a, actually yeah. to me that was a kind of a really suspenseful <laughs> sequence. Mm. But then I had the additional problem in, in that this this same guy who's doing a uh, <laughs> kind of a bit I'm not on board with is also one of my least favorite actors, Matthew Bodine, who is who who you even in the, the best of circumstances. You oh, say the we phrase. have okay. Well, worst of all, Matthew Modine, because <laughs> there's nothing that, you know. He's doing a lot of physical things. But I didn't. There's nothing in his eyes. There's nothing like a deeper level to help me understand this guy's malady. It just seemed very much a surface level performance to me. Ma- uh, yes, worst of all, Matthew Modine is the second worst thing in this movie. The second biggest impediment to what he the movie's trying to do for me. I was actually on board with a lot of things that the movie is exploring. Uh, Colin, I completely agree that I'm admirer of the ambition of what he's trying to do, which to me is kind of a contemporary nature version of kind of what Donnie Darko is trying to do in the sense that it's taking a attempted realist, realist story of what it's like to be a kid and then, but tying it into these like flights of fantasy and wonder and then trying to give, explore the border of those things. I, I like that idea. And, and the idea of someone who can, you know, who has this moment of poetry and grace and nature in his life in what is otherwise a pretty destitute environment is a really nice theme. It's brought upon spectacularly well through Parker's direction because there's points where Birdie in his cell looks out at the window and the window has this almost perfect diagonal shaft of moonlight and as he's watching you see you hear and see thousands of birds coming in and and it's and i think the score very lightly rises up and you you feel this level of uplift that's the one dark corner in this particular wall or bird cage that he's been that he finds himself in but Modine cannot help but fail at every turn at depicting any inner life for uh, for his character. He comes across to me like a dude who's just like, okay, you need to perch at the edge of your cot. Now you need to go jerk your head back and forth as you take your um, bird seed. And at at no point I'm looking at him and going, what is what is what is Birdie thinking? I'm more thinking, what is Matthew Modine doing? <laughs> I will come to the defense of Matthew Modine in this film. I actually, I don't think he's the problem with this film. I actually, I, I actually like his performance. And I thought, I made a note here that I think Matthew Modine is a better actor the, the less hair he has. <laughs> uh, see, also Full Metal Jacket. He's a reverse uh, Samson. Uh, <laughs> 
No, I think because I think he's just kind of a child. I think that's and I think that's kind of established in the first scene of the film, the way he's hun- you know sitting on this doorstep, hunched, you know, like very childlike with his birds and very innocent, um, you know, just not a, a person of the world. And I think Matthew Modine, uh, I think he, I think that's, I think he, he's a good choice to play that kind of a part. I, no, this is a flaw, a very flawed film, uh, but I, 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 I find it fascinating. It's, it's the kind of thing where you watch it and go, well, clearly Parker had final cut on this. <laughs> you know, it's like there's not a lot of studio meddling in this one because it's just so, like you said, it is all over the place. You know, I, but I do think it is, it has some of Parker's most striking imagery in it. I love the shots of you know the the bird silhouette against the, the against the wall of the building. Yep. I think that is gorgeous. There's I think one um, giant bird silhouette. Yeah, right? that that's yeah. what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. You know, a lot of the a lot of the more dreamier stuff in the film I think looks really beautiful. But it it's it's such a delicate line to walk between moments of comedy and moments of madness and moments of just um you know dreaminess. Yeah. And uh, and and it and it especially is true of the very end of the film, which could cause people to just go, "What the hell?" I mean, it, you know, it it's it's one of those. It's a scene where you, when you watch it, it deals with Birdie finally breaking out of his shell, so to speak, and it cum- culminates in this kind of ridiculous chase scene in the hospital. Uh, that is, it, it, it's played with a straight face and is very serious. And the Peter Gabriel music is cranked to eleven. And but then it ends on this like where it's kind of supposed to be funny. I don't know if I'm down with that, but at the same time, it's like God, I love the attempt at that sort of thing. I'm not sure if that's you know like I'm so mixed on it when I want, when the movie's over, I'm like. I really want to love this or like it, and I'm not sure I do, but I don't hate it, and I'm like, uh, I'm like, you know, it's kind of a, a weird comedy drama balance problem that's going on because, yeah. you know, you 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 also near the end are uh, flashback scenes to Vietnam, right. which have been alluded through throughout the film. But only at the end do we kind of see uh, these Vietnam scenes, uh, you know, done in in full spectacle, right. which, uh, you know, on, on the one hand seemed kind of pointless because plot-wise this has already been covered. Yeah. But also, you know, it, dar- you know, it, it, it makes the film even darker thematically. So then when it shifts to an attempted comic moment at the end – it's completely jarring. It, it kind of undercuts everything, too. Oh, um, uh, kind of? Yeah. <laughs> so is here where the spoiler warning well, begins? Before we, yes, we're, we're going to, okay. We're, we're, definitely going to, we're definitely going to do that. I'm going to not only give a spoiler warning, but I'm going to tell you people uh, listening that when there's a moment where Nicolas Cage is dragging Matthew Modine up the stairs, Run! Run! Just run! Turn off the DVD. <laughs> throw it out the window. Run out of the theater. Whatever you do, do not see the last two minutes of Birdie because you will hate the movie. You will hate Alan Parker, and you will hate yourself. Okay. All right. Now we're spoiling it. 
what happens is it's really, it's really, really dark, and uh, Bertie's clearly gone through a lot. And there, but there's a moment where Bertie is talking, but in this development straight out of like the Michigan J Frog thing from Chuck Jones's cartoons, he's only talking to Nicolas Cage. So at that moment, and when uh, another authority figure is there, he's not responsive. So you're wondering, so at this point, I at least was looking at, well, maybe Nicolas Cage is simply imagining this stuff. So he's dragging Bertie up. And then they go to the roof, and Bertie's on the per, uh, perched on the edge. He jumps off, and for a moment, you're just wondering: did did he did he fall? Did he die? Is he flying? You're open to all sorts of possibilities. And Parker picks the worst one, where you look down, and there's there he is, like a like a roof that is just six feet lower, and Matthew Modine, in the most casual, flippant way possible, goes, "What?" That. Cut to credits. Cut to to credits. Cut to the festive La Bamba after you get to this morbid, weird, bizarre thing to get to... Like, that what is not to me nothing more than a slap in the face of everybody who's trying to go and experience this film by saying, yeah, what? What? You saw all this weird stuff. What was it about? Maybe Bernie had made up the whole goddamn thing. Maybe this whole thing was his... Stupid affectation, which, among other things, keeps him in a military mental hospital? Where is that? You know, that's, ri- that's ridiculous. That concept that he was literally Im- pretending to be a bird on purpose was so repugnant, I literally had to walk around my block after I saw that ending. <laughs> and I, I just, it, it, it wounds me. <laughs> so, in, in fact, Brett, I think you even had an idea which, about what he was like, which is even crazy. Well, 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 yeah, I mean, I didn't necessarily think he was faking the whole time. I thought maybe Nicolas Cage's efforts yeah. to reach him finally were successful. And unfortunately, the movie chose the most awkward way of revealing this. Yeah, uh, Colin, which did you think uh, yeah. of the... Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think if the movie had ended with just Modine coming out of his catatonia and just kind of ended there, it would have been fine. Like, I think that would have been a nice lovely way to end the film but to tack on this whole escape scene it just it is it just does not work um i admire like the attempt of kind of trying to have the movie end on a humorous note because i mean parker just came off of the wall you know, it's like he doesn't want to be the king of the bummers. Uh, you know, have to shoot the moon and the wall. And, there, there is nothing and, more off know. the wall than that ending of Birdie. Right, right. <laughs> so, like, the, you know, I think that's just, I think that's just an attempt to, you know, try to make this thing uh, more palpable for an audience. It just doesn't work, unfortunately. And now, well, we're going to go watch Alan Parker go evoke a totally different sensibility, but a return to the, the noir genre, where it goes in a very swampy direction in his film Angel Heart in 1987. If God will send his angels, and if God will send a sign, and if God will send his angels, Harry Angel, a great name, by the way, is hired by a person who calls himself I.M.TheDevil to find a missing criminal. Uh, His travels go take him to the dark 
heartness of 1955 New Orleans and its surroundings. But the closer he goes and gets to the truth, the more people keep ending up dying in horrific ways. And this is like this voodoo-tinged look at a noir story, including a very, very interesting take on like the tragic noir ending, where if a guy, the noir story is about going after pursuing and solving a mystery. The tragedy is that you actually do find out what happens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I think this entire discussion just has to be a spoiler warning because the movie has something it, it may or may not want to be hiding and then reveal. That's true. But it is it, 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 it is very obvious what it is that is. Well, one part of it is very, very obvious, as you may have guessed by the particular casting list I just mentioned. However, there is another twist that we are going to get into, which before we do, I just want to say that this is a case where Alan Parker has one of the best cases of sustained atmosphere mm-hmm. I've mm-hmm. ever seen. Yeah. This version of New Orleans is swampy, dark, strange, and just so potent that it is a, it's a case sometimes the director is able to make an environment where I just love the environment. I don't even care mm-hmm. what story or characters happen in there. I would, I can personally will dive again and again and again into the war, into the dark, mysterious, macabre world of Angel Heart. There's a real big divide between the story and the look. Story wise, it's it's kind of a B film. It, 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 Very it, much it's, so. It's yes. kind of like you know a, a cheesy horror film. But it's but but the way Alan Parker directs it, as you alluded to, uh, is unforgettable. And the and as far as being a neo noir, use of shadows, use of sets, use of what we think of as. Um, those you know is imp- you know these impressionistic uh kind of dark views i'm sorry not impressionist expressionist german yes. expressionism yes. uh is is spellbinding while at the same time you're dealing with a plot that's you're kind of like really <laughs> <laughs> yeah i it, it the the setting like our, my impression of the film's expression just carries me through for the events like <laughs> i mean it gives me a sense that in this dark world of the film, almost any weird turn could be possible. Like, the kind of like maybe like how like H.P. Lovecraft evokes in his stories, and I'm a huge fan of Lovecraft. You know, like just oh, like feature when when you have someone featuring one of the most eleva- evil elevators in history, the side <laughs> of The Shining. <laughs> like you're just like, oh, whoa, what can happen next? Yeah, and I I, I agree. I think the movie is carried by the atmosphere of it um and i that's what keeps me glued to it although i mean i i I do i i I like the casting and i think mickey rourke is really good and you can kind of see when watching this movie why he was the big star he was back then Mm -hmm. a lot of a lot of charm and charisma uh with him in this role and And, heart actually yeah Mm -hmm. right and um and i and i think de niro is is effectively creepy in it um even if it is spelled out for us, I think it's. I, I still enjoy the performance. He's right. able to handle an egg with malevolence. <laughs> right, right, right. De Niro insisted on having and growing his nails right. quite long to uh, to create the character of uh, Louis Cipher. 
Yeah. <laughs> no no press on nails for the ultimate <laughs> yeah. method. Yeah. Right. And, and 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 I love I love that um that uh like you're talking about the elevator scene. I think it's really a, a cool choice in the end credits yeah. to keep cutting to that. Yes. I love mm-hmm. that so mm-hmm. much. Uh, I think that's uh, that's one of Parker's best moments. Yes, between and, this and the pool scene, right? He yeah. is so good at endless, the feeling of endless descent. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I also want to bring up the casting of uh, Lisa Bonet, uh, former Cosby girl, uh, when she was on the Cosby show at the time, and I think A Different World, her spin the spinoff show, I think was also going on at the time. And Directed then, by Debbie Allen. Right. And uh, this movie got a lot of controversy when it came out uh, because of the particular scene between her and Mickey Rourke. It was a very intense sex scene that was very bloody. Just It was, it was a stylistic thing about yeah. it. Uh, that it was almost like it took sex into almost make it look like a ritual killing. Yeah, because there's a lot of voodoo underpinnings right, to the film. Right, mm-hmm. and it was very creepy, and uh, it 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 almost got an X rating, and Parker had to really cut out a lot of stuff to get an R rating from for it, and um, eventually the movie came out on video in both versions. Um, and, but that was, that, I remember when that happened, it took a while for the movie to come out and it was very controversial. And because it was Lisa Bonet, who was like this wholesome, right. Has right. this wholesome TV image. And here she is. And Mr. Cosby, uh, did not approve. Right. Yeah. Right. So yep. yeah. When America's father is saying my daughter is in this voodoo sex mm-hmm. film, you know, that it's, yep. it makes for an interesting headline. I, insert your 2017 update here. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It, um, yeah, it the presentation of that scene, it, like um, it. I want to run a question on you, Colin. Did you get a chance to see the X-rated version? I'm... Yeah, that was a version that I my wonderful video store, Quick Flix Video, rented out to me because my parents checked that magic box that my son can rent these movies. Oh, nice! Uh, and it was uh, technically unrated, so I was able to get that one. I think that was the only version they carried. Hmm. So, but it's too bad, like that Lisa Bonet really was relegated to the sort of sitcom status that she never really escaped from because she has a wonderful presence in the film. Uh, she's really just, uh, just has a really winning personality in it. Uh, sexy as hell. And just, um, you know, just, yeah, I was, you're immediately drawn to her when she comes on screen. Um, and, you know, she pops up in little, little roles here and there since then. But I think, I think she was destined for better things. This film is a triumph to me of how you can use actors, not necessarily to say, like, these robust, multiply nuanced characters, but as really effective personas that enhance mm-hmm. the mood. It's hard to believe actually saying these words, but a person who engaged in that sex scene with Mickey Rourke and had a uh, start have voodoo ritual where you uh, decapitated a chicken and right. pouring its blood everywhere. Mm-hmm. But she's actually one of the personifications of innocence in this world. Right? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of a nice a nice trick. And know? her name is Epiphany, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Another another really. Yes. Everybody's name. name is not just a name in this film. There, right. there, there you have the musician Toot Sweet. You have yeah. Yeah. Harry Angel. Every, all all yeah. the names. We have we, we might be experiencing like one of the rare movies that's a live recreation of a tarot card reading right. <laughs> in film in film noir. 
form, you know? And the presentation includes the just this present personas that the people have. Like Charlotte Rampling, her particular weird sexuality is put to really great effect here. Um, Mickey Rourke, it is, this is one of his more Rourkean things. Mm-hmm. You know, he always had a level of, he always had a level of basic, I, I'm just going to say it, slimy disrepute to him. <laughs> but there was a be- beating, pulsing heart to it. And um, pun not intended, <laughs> but it, it all comes through with this. I think this is his most winning uh, performance for me because he he does get to this level where you don't trust him. You don't, uh, and he is very clearly cynical, but then there's a level of idealism that's underneath such that when the grand twist is revealed, he you you feel for him. You feel in the way... In a way that is a weird, to me, a weirdly weird echo of what happens at the end of the wall, you know? It's kind of the ultimate level of self-realization to your, <laughs> to what you've done, right? <laughs> you know, maybe it's more impressive to have uh, direction and acting and all the uh, tools of filmmaking used to sell a premise that doesn't quite work on its own, that doesn't work on the page... Yeah. And then it does work on screen. Yes. That's an accomplishment. I, I agree because usually I'm I'm of the opinion that like uh, um that direction can be very limited in terms of enhancing a screenplay if the screenplay itself is crap, you know? It's but here it works wonderfully. Like there's so much value that comes out of this movie and a lot of it comes from how it enhances that, as you described, Brad, as B-level story. And I special note, also want to make the use of music. The old school jazz, the... the, the saxophone, yeah. That saxophone, <laughs> oh my god. It, it is, I mean, this is a movie that in every sense of the word is just dripping with atmosphere. Yeah, and... and- and it's. I, I was looking up, and I know you saw me on my phone. I'm not checking my email. I promise. <laughs> I'm, I'm doing research here. I just wanted to make sure I had this right. One of one of the things that's interesting about Alan's work is that he often works with the same cinematographer. Uh, not all of his movies, but most of them were shot by um, uh, Michael Saracen, and this is one of them. And I think this is one of the best looking films uh, in in Alan's filmography yeah it's just beautiful once a special mention needs to be mentioned about um how parker has a very very loyal crew like i think uh, sarishan has done all all, the vast majority of his films and i think he even started yes he started with um uh, bugsy malone yeah Mm. yeah if you watch these two movies together uh (laughs) you can see that there's a before and after yeah (laughs) and he has a very long-standing um relationship with jerry hambling who's been his editor for the um vast majority of his films um, you know, Alan Parker has a certain kind of look to his films, and I think uh, Michael Saracen is an important part of providing that look. You, you know, what's funny is that there's another director of this era had a similar sensibility, similar look, and that's Adrian Lyne. If you take a shot from an Adrian mm-hmm. Lyne film and, and, and say, is it Alan Parker or Adrian Lyne? You look at it and go, hmm, 
I don't know. Could be yeah. either one. <laughs> Those two are the um, uh, Dylan McDermott slash Dermot Mulrooney. Uh, right, right. <laughs> sometimes, right. I was, I was sort of thinking that maybe we would, uh, maybe we would follow the lead of, of our compatriots on the Now Playing Network's Pure Cinema, right. who do a really nice job of pairing movies. And so, hey, maybe for every Alan Parker movie, let's find the Adrian <laughs> Lin movie. Right. So yeah, like uh, Jacob's Ladder would be the wall. Totally. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. Exactly. Those two would be really great. Yeah. Uh, and Jacob. Slater would work kind of well with Angel Heart too. Angel Heart's yeah. obviously more of a genre exercise, but they both kind of do yeah. horrific elements. Very well done, by the way, yeah. right. to enhance the uh, some psychological kind of uh, kind of underpinnings. Again, mm-hmm. it's a lot more metaphysical in Angel Heart's case, you know. Yeah. Now Parker's next film explores a much more realistic darkness, or tries to in his film Mississippi Burning in 1988. It's definitely burning. <laughs> From the very first scene, we see just how incredibly dangerous it was to be an African-American in 1960s Mississippi. In this environment, three civil rights voting activists go missing, and two federal agents are sent there to investigate, and where they encounter serious resistance from the local white population and law enforcement into looking further for the issue. Well, I, I think this is Parker at his best It is a devastating, powerful portrayal of segregation, 1964 South, of one of the incidents that kicked off the civil rights movement, the murder of the three civil rights workers, Goodman, Cheney, and Schwerner. That woke a lot of people in the country up to what was happening. And what this film does is honestly portray a culture that has become so sick, the uh, old South that will have to give way. And just as a portrayal of one of the, the darkest periods of American history, this history comes alive through the investigations of two FBI agents uh, played by uh, Willem Dafoe as the idealistic uh, younger agent coming in from the Justice Department and Gene Hackman as a bit of a of a good old boy with a little bit more of an understanding of the uh, racist white culture of Mississippi at the time. Mm-hmm. Whereas some of Parker's uh, earlier films were like using events, horrific events, to kind of illuminate a psychological condition. Here, I feel one of the strongest things the movie does, one of the more successful things that it does, is it takes techniques of horror to go and illuminate a social position. I think the film is at its most effective at delivering an environment of sheer, unmitigated terror and chaos towards the African-American community in, in this environment. At any point, they can be attacked 
Their place can be burned. They can be dragged out of their home. And there is no justice, no respite to be found anywhere for them. They are shown in the movie as in a kind of a passive manner, but the atmosphere really brings out this feeling about like that goes a decent way to me to justify like in that kind of world the what how many options do you have apart from like uh you know hoping for the best and hunkering down and trying to keep your family safe and so on. Yeah, I I, I I like this movie too. Um and I think it's interesting to watch today not just because of the racial tension that we have going on in our country that, you know, is has really come to the surface as of late. But um, as a movie in our culture today where we're so sensitive about how minorities are portrayed, uh, you know, this is a film that is, and it got some criticism um, at the time, well, not as much as it would have today for being a film about, you know, uh, the you know, racism in the South, but told from the white person's perspective. Uh, that wouldn't fly as much today uh, as it was. It was okay back in '88 when the well, film came out, but I think today that would be it would get a lot more criticism for it. Well, the big difference is that this is one of the first films to actually depict the civil rights movement in any way whatsoever. Right. right. It just wasn't something that was covered on film. And certainly as time moved on from 1988 and we saw this entire series of films about the African-American struggle with white protagonists, mm-hmm. it became a disturbing pattern. Yeah. But in this particular case... It's actually the only way to tell this story because, uh, you know, I mean, you could tell a different story from the African-American perspective. But if you're actually committed to, you know, talking about these murders and how the investigation of these murders revealed what was horrifically going on, there would be no chance that an African-American agent could come in undercover in 1964 Mississippi you know, it's told that way. It's because it's it, it's based loosely on, on a true story, and it's told really the only way it could be. Yeah, I mean, I think the movie is is it holds up in spite of all that, in spite of all that, because I think it's the characters are well written, and right. the cast is extraordinary. Um, I mean, I love all the stuff with the Francis McDormand and Gene Hackman. Mm-hmm. I think that's like a really unexpected layer to a story like this that you wouldn't think to put in there, but it's there. There's this kind of like romantic tension between them. I mean, it, it seems like it would be forced into something like this. You know, you could almost hear you know uh, executives saying, "Well, we got to have a love interest in this thing. If we're going to look at burning crosses and <laughs> dead, you know, African right. Americans being killed, right. I want to see some sex in this picture." But giving that sort of relationship between McDormand and Hackman, I think, was a really unexpected layer to this film that I thought really worked. It's handled so delicately just with with these two great performances, but everything involving Hackman is just masterful. I I, I do think he's simply one of our greatest actors, and, and I think this is one of his greatest roles because whereas Defoe has this idealistic streak that kind of puts him in, in, in a situation where he's 
being an audience surrogate saying what we think and being kind of very literal about things. Hackman holds his cards much closer to the vest. There's a a point at which uh, somebody is talking about, well, these civil rights workers got killed. And Hackman goes, well, no, I'm concerned that these kids got killed. So there's even a little bit of ambiguity with Hackman as somebody from Mississippi who is now dedicated to, you know, this law and order issue. And so he has a complicated relationship with the civil rights movement. And I think that characterization brings additional depth to the film. Interesting. I'm going to kind of beg to differ a little bit about that. I mean, do you think that Hackman's character has a level of ambiguity towards the towards civil rights, towards the voting rights. It seems pretty clear-cut to me that he's completely on board with the civil rights movement. He just, like, knows the community and is more, basically has a different attitude about how to fix things. I mean, that may be, but but it's not said outright. If you If you actually look at his actions and what he says and where he and Defoe, differ on methods he is he is he's coming down strong law and order you know it's almost like you know kind of when everyone would in the civil war would ask uh lincoln about you know where he stands on slavery he'd be you know he'd, he'd say my number one goal is is to uh protect the union and hackman certainly i i think it's a fair reading i think it's probably the correct reading to say that he has sympathy for the movement but because of his background, he doesn't wear that on his sleeve. So I'm, I'm not trying to suggest that he's a closet racist or that he's, he's of one with the bigots in this film. But I do think it's interesting that his, he's laser focused on the entire law and order part of it. Which that's kind of interesting you bring that up. I, I just want to quickly point out that like Hackman is, well, you're completely right. He's one of our greatest actors, and one of the things he did great was actually show a person with, who is sympathetic, who has racist attitudes, as his sheriff in Unforgiven, mm-hmm. on uh, which is kind of the ultimate example of law and order, I guess, if he's the sheriff, right? But uh, the stuff about law and order, I also have a bit of difference, especially when you consider what is, I think, a really big flaw of the film, which is that. He effectively endorses vigilantism. He basically says it's perfectly right for you to lie to people, deceive people, even in a scene later, threaten people with hanging <laughs> to go and get what you want. So that's, that runs completely counter to the idea of law and order. And it's not just like, you know, repugnant on a moral scale, you can say, but specifically speaking, that's kind of the exact attitude that the locals have towards <laughs> toward the locals mm-hmm. have towards the African American population. They can use those exact same justifications to say, "Hey, we have law and order in this town. Everything's going sw- swimmingly until those people decide to make a right. mess." Whether coming, whether people coming in from the north or the African American community like being really annoying by talking about their right to vote. So, let's go do what's necessary to maintain law and order. Well, that's where some of the ambiguity comes in. And I and I should clarify that when I'm when I'm talking about his character in relationship to law and order, I'm basically talking about his attitude towards the case. And he's, you know, one of these uh Agent, you know, as you mentioned, he's 
whatever gets the job done yep. kind of guy. You know, you, so you, you can see that he's outraged about what's going on, about the innocent people being killed, the, the, the murders and whatnot. And he is, you know, in the good cop, bad cop scenario, the bad cop here. Mm, I don't think the movie judges his actions of vigilantism negatively in any way whatsoever. I think the fact that, in fact, the big turning point is William Defoe's, you know what? I've had just about enough of this racism. I'm going to do things your way. The movie, to me, is a just complete endorsement of Hackman's methods. And that's something which viscerally mm-hmm. you appeals, to, uh, appeals but, but again, this is a case where Parker's a very effective directorial technique runs at odds with the fact that, you, in fact, you are dealing with um, a real situation, with real people. And when you basically treat the African-Americans as these sainted victims who have no agency, little more than like barnyard animals who are mistreated like the burned horses earlier in the film, and it's up to these two white guys to go like literally bend their own law in order to, ha- to, to do what's right, like – it sells incredibly short shrift to the real people who, for all it takes for these two guys, they are federal agents. They have occasional threats, but it is so much harder and so much more heroic for the, the African-Americans in this community who did like organize to try to, get, uh, try to get rights, and those aren't addressed in the movie. And to the extent that the movie is about a historical event, it falls really, really short by just making this an effective heroic tale of uh, two people triumphing uh, against, against this oppressive system. And it's all the more offensive when you realize that it's the, these guys are from the FBI. I mean, ultimately, I think the movie is a little more fair than I was initially giving it credit because it does show like uh, African-American community members organizing at some points. But to actually have them be FBI agents... If, if I was someone who was involved in that movement, I would be absolutely furious because the FBI was no friend to African-Americans. That stuff where uh, Martin Luther King Jr. had tapes of him sleeping with other women, that was taped by the FBI. The FBI had a huge dossier on Martin Luther King and other African-American activists while at the same time denying the existence of the mafia. The FBI started the whole concept that Martin Luther King and those movements were subversive and communist. That didn't come from the, small, the, local, the local town. That was, that was a pervasive attitude that the F, that, that organization helped foment. So to literally have those guys from that agency is as offensive as like making a movie today and, uh, and having like, boy, the, the African-American population is being menaced by some people who are killing them. They're killing them. Why, it's up to these two Cleveland police officers to help save them. Well, it may, it may be inconvenient, but it's true. Uh, it, 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 uh, the film recognizes all that you said 
about the FBI, although very briefly, it talks about there are some lines of dialogue where it says that, you know, well, Hoover's no friend of, of Martin Luther King. He had tapes on him. There's other lines. And, and then there's other lines of dialogue where they talk about how Willem Dafoe is actually brand new to the FBI. He's from the Justice Department, uh, which was uh, Robert Kennedy's Justice Department. And when Hoover's FBI was dragging its feet, you know, engaging in those terrible activities that you discussed, uh, Robert Kennedy's Justice Department basically came in and changed the FBI, brought in people like uh, like Willem Dafoe. So I, I do think part of your criticism is addressed in the script itself. But but in the end, I, I think what you're asking for is another story and another movie, because there is simply no way to tell this story with full African-American protagonists, because look at what happens. Any African-American citizen that even speaks to the FBI, there's a scene where Willem Dafoe sits next to somebody in a segregated restaurant, and that person is beaten and brutalized. This population has been oppressed into silence. So we don't get to see the heroic uprising of the community because that wasn't allowed because anyone who tried to initiate an uprising like that would have been lynched on the spot. Mm. Well, I would counter by saying that there is a great many movies that are about people who are in a similarly oppressive environment. Like how, for example, take Melville's age of shadows, people who are also fighting against impossible odds. And in a movie that very fairly, points out that like maybe those odds are not going to really work out for them. You can make compelling stories about like people who have this level of oppression, who have this level of terror. But you can't make a movie about the solving of this case. Okay, though you can't make a movie about that has this conventional dramatic arc on this without like sanding off a lot of the messiness. And to the extent, again, to the extent that it is dealing with a real event, that messiness is real people who have been involved in, 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 real, in real things. And, that, and those things still have value even if, like, their, even if like their efforts were not successful. Also, I mean, the, what you can't depict, unfortunately, is could depict this, this level of resistance in, with using African Americans – in a way that audiences in 1988 were willing to watch. That's just the real shame of it. I kind of think that, like, as Colin noted, you know, through people today and their attitudes, they're very, very ingrained. And these were, these were ingrained that you're not, if you don't have, like, these events and how they affect white people, that people are not going to watch in, in mass qualities. You need that. You need those sur. You need those surrogates. But what's happening today, I think, is another reason why this is an essential film, and, and a film that you know, for all the controversy, I do think is a film on the side of the angels, which is that we have we now see this subculture, this this clan neo Nazi subculture once again raising their ugly head, and what Mississippi Burning uh, provides is an unblinking, horrific look 
not just at race relations, but of this white racist subculture that for too long was dominant in this country and in, especially in certain parts of this country. Yeah, I, I want to. I mean, I want to step back. This is a really heady topic, you know, <laughs> yeah. and 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 maybe one very worthy of a bonus episode because this is very much an open question as to how much. Should a work of art be fidel- have fidelity to a historical event and honor the people there versus telling a dramatic story? Maybe if more people are buy into the drama, they can feel the horror of that situation more in a way than something that was more honest to the messiness of the situation. So, again, that might be great father for a bonus episode, but um, uh, Colin, I've, you can just... Yeah, no, I, 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 I've, I've not intentionally staying out of it. Well, I guess I am, but... Um, <laughs> But I no, I do think the movie. I, I do think the movie. I, I do think the movie would have been made differently today. Um, but uh, I think you know, in the context of 1988, and like you said, Brad, this this is kind of starting to be movies about civil rights and racism and even apartheid at this point in the 80s. And Mississippi Burning was kind of one of those films, like Cry Freedom and A World Apart and. There's another movie called Betrayed that came out around the same time as this one. Mm-hmm. It was starting to become more of a dialogue at that time. So, um, once again, Alan Parker is sort of courting controversy in a way. Uh, certainly, people in Mississippi were not happy with how this movie portrayed their state. Um, he is so, sometimes seems like he's moving through different countries and checking off the list of who won't get invited, like the right. Simpsons episodes when they travel. And he's an Englishman, so he's really an outsider looking at all this. So it's interesting that he's able to, you know, evoke these historic um, moments and you know create these atmospheres like an angel heart as somebody who is not from this country, right? Um, and I think he, I think he does this, and you know, this is a very earnest film. Um, and it's very, it, it sort of feels like it's of its time, but at the same time, uh, you know, watching it, I think watching it two years ago and watching it today, I think are two different experiences, Exactly. you know? Yeah. So, mm-hmm. right. Maybe, maybe the film is like, and it's ironic that it's a film that deals with a historical event mm. that it, the film itself is now encased in amber and maybe a good way to people of appreciating it is looking at people in the 80s and yeah. their attitudes of looking at event and it was and it was a huge like i mean it was a big movie when it came out it was i think it was ebert's number 1 film uh and mm. I, it was it was very much a front runner to win best picture beat uh, rain man beat it uh but it was very much neck and neck race between those two films uh it did win for best cinematography and oddly enough this is not this is a film not uh filmed by um his his regular cinematographer it was Peter Bizieux, who actually uh, shot a lot of uh, Adrian Lyne films. Too. Mm. Um, Back to him. So, yeah, <laughs> right. So um, no, but it, this was a this was a big movie at the time, and it, it started a lot of dialogue, um, just much like the one you just had. Right, right. Yeah. So maybe uh, something like that does have value, even on a film that that steps wrong here, here or there. And his uh, his next film would attempt the same thing as covering a, a very unfortunate part of American history. Exactly right. This is actually one of the smoother transitions of in yeah. terms of uh, Parker's <laughs> filmography. Yeah. He continues on a historical vein and attempts to put in a, a story in terms of like a family in his film "Come See the Paradise" in 1990. 
the story of um, a Japanese lady named Lily and her young daughter as they're walking out to a. It starts as they're walking out to a train station uh, to meet the um, the father who's going to be arriving soon. And while they wait there, Lily tells her about the history of her family as they had experienced the um, Japanese internment during World War II. This is a period where the where Japanese citizens who had committed no crime were basically uh, grabbed by authorities and moved over to camps in a totally different part of the country and sequestered there away from the public. And it is one of the more shameful events of like the U.S. government U.S. government action, a case where the federal's forces were very much in the wrong. This movie strikes me as both the movie its own movie and the movie it could have been. Because it comes in two distinct parts. Uh, the first part of the movie is what I would describe as an extremely uh, conventional love story. Uh, Dennis Quaid falls in love with beautiful Lily from the uh, local Japanese community. And this relationship with uh, with, with the various uh, kind of prejudices and regular kind of romantic movie cliches unfolds. The, the stern, disapproving father, yes, to take one yes. example. It, it unfolds just exactly as you might predict. You could watch this film's first half and basically just say, well, I guess the next scene has to be this, and then the scene after yeah. has to be this. Now, once it gets into the internment camp, it, it starts doing a far better job at uh, at presenting a um, uh, an environment we haven't seen before in a part of American yes. history that it, that is not often discussed, and certainly is I have not seen depicted uh, visually before. And 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 it's the the film starts to to gain its footing as it as as it as it does this. But uh, I, I can't help but think how much stronger it would have been if the Dennis uh, Quaid character were eliminated altogether and we, we got to really focus uh, on this family and what happens to them at this part of American history. Yeah, this is a part where like you have the two – there's two things that were – that seem to be at odds in, to me in both <coughs> – to be at odds in both Mississippi Birding and Come See the Paradise, where you have the real historical event and the attempt to be honor that event with the attempt to make a story that's compelling for as wide an audience as possible. And I'm with you, Brad, in that the, the two halves are a little more frayed. They're a little more distant. They're a little more distinct in, in, this, in this film. But look at what you were mentioning on the Whence They're in Determined Camp. They're not breaking out of that internment camp. They are oppressed. They have their rights and freedoms curtailed. Mm -hmm. And within that environment, there's such a robust level of all these details that are really interesting and fascinating on here. How, like, for example, there's a certain contingent of people in the camps that, while they were American citizens, they were for the U.S. patriots, but their treatment... At, by the hands of the U.S., literally caused them to renounce their citizenship and swear fealty to Japan. But there were other people in the camps who remained patriots, and there was a literal civil war going on inside there. And also, just the way life, the way life goes on in there with people having jokes and romances and mu even musicals, 
One thing Parker is, he <laughs> loves his musical sequences, so he decide, he, he's good at putting those in. But here, it, it shows just how a level of accommodation, how even in this environment, you want to try and get you know, a semblance of a normal life. And, and it's also a moment where all the members of the family who you had thought of, the, of Lily's Japanese-American family, who you had thought then were going to be the stock characters who were airdropped in to tell the story, mm-hmm. instead they gain death by like the way they deal with the father, by thinking he had, been, he had given away secrets to the, to the authorities, and the way he's ostracized, and the way these two brothers fight over how to, um, or how to deal with their situation. They're given this level of depth to it, just by that, that you're so right, Brett. It, it, to me, it, I agree. It, fall, it gets its footing when by, by literally getting these guys imprisoned. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm a little more forgiving of the first half. I kind of find it it's sort of a, there's old-fashioned. Um, I think there's a sweetness to it that uh, we haven't seen in Parker's films since Bugsy Malone. <laughs> and I kind of like man. Great And point. watching all these movies in order, I really appreciated that. And I do think that what's, What's really interesting is that it's not quite as simple as, oh, here's this white character who is going to be the savior of these, you know, uh, Japanese Americans, because he's sort of un-American himself. You know, he's kind of a communist sympathizer, and uh, that costs him a lot of his livelihood. He loses jobs for you know being associated with the wrong kind of people at the time. And that that puts him that I think puts him on almost on equal footing here, uh, mm. which I think is um, you know in, in terms of what you know the American you know view of that sort of thing was at the time. He's very he's he's as un-American at that you know after the bombing of Pearl Harbor as these Japanese Americans in the eyes of a lot of Americans at the time. And he's a deserter, he's uh, a deserter. from the army. Right, yeah. that too. So it's not just, a, oh, I'm, he's just this average guy, which I think is really interesting. I think that makes it not a victim of, you know, this sort of neo-racism that you could a- apply to a film like this. Mm, that's a really cool perspective. I hadn't even I hadn't even thought about that part where like yeah his he does have this outsider status from his like from his like pro union kind of position. Uh, unfortunately, I think like Dennis Quaid's performance is kind of defeated by Dennis Quaid's big mouth. In for me because he's shows the same level of impulse control and discipline that Albert Finney showed in Shoot the Moon. Like it's okay. It's one thing to have these views. But it's another thing that, like, he visits his brother, and literally the second shot is him saying, talking about the plight of the working class over the yeah, dinner yeah, table. Yeah. It's like, will you at least have the mashed potatoes before you start <laughs> with your agitprop? I mean, like, okay, you can, I mean, while your values are great, you don't have to be an asshole about it, like, ten minutes before you come in. <laughs> and it seems Dennis Quaid's character just kind of does that way, way too much. So where I was, I was really actually literally afraid that I was thinking, oh my God, this is going to be, he's going to get these, this family out of the internment camp by having a tearful trial sequence where he mm-hmm. goes, there shall not stand. Like, yeah. that's really the, I was really fearing that this was where the movie would go. But then, he adds the, Dennis Quaid adds to the movie by his absence in the second half. <laughs> he does not make any triumphant return appearances except to periodically check in on the family. And by then slowly shifting the focus out to the, the family itself, it just, 
It just enhances. And this, by the way, just to say, this isn't necessarily Dennis Quaid's fault. Quaid is an mm-hmm. actor who's willing to go totally all out in, the, in trying to depict the role. And he does a really wonderful sequence about at the one-third mark where they're singing, like, uh, they're singing these American songs of the period. And they're like, Have you, how about you sing? How are you sing? And then he sings this apparently pitch-perfect traditional Japanese song that really touches everybody mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and, I mean, affected me as well. Yeah. I think my main problem with the film is the structure. I, I, I'm mostly, uh, my big problem is uh, the flashback structure. I mean, a lot of it comes back to her. She's talking to her daughter who is asking about their relationship and they keep cutting back to that. And I just thought it's just, it's not making the movie better. It's just making it longer, mm-hmm. you know, and I don't think it's Yeah, there, there is certain points where, where um, you, you look at their flashback sequence and you just go, well, shouldn't you, as a, I know you're a young girl, but shouldn't you ever remember this stuff? It feels like it just happened like two right, years yeah, ago. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a weird kind of use of reminisce, you mm. know? <laughs> so now we've spent uh, a good deal of time with uh, Descents into Madness and uh, Noirs and horrific historic events. Seriously, one the might 80s wonder, were a bummer for Alan Parker. For sure. God. One might wonder, can this guy ever lighten up? <laughs> but fortunately... <laughs> yeah, fortunately, yeah, that's right. He, like, he makes a movie about commitment that is actually not about commitment to a mental institution. <laughs> this is his movie called The Commitments in 1991. It's a story about a bunch of Irish youths who have this love and adoration towards American R&B music. And the film basically goes, chronicles the rise and the fall of the band that they formed to go and play it. And uh, you're so right, Brad. At this turn, he it, this is one of the most relentlessly positive and upbeat uh, films. Like something that, to me, evokes like the spirit of Jay Carney, the great director of like Once and... Uh, uh, and begin again, and, and the Sing Street, I believe. John Carney, by the John way. Carney, yeah. thank you. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is a movie that I did not have to watch before doing this episode because I've seen it so many times. It is just one of those movies I put on to put a smile on my face. I love it. Absolutely love it. It came out in 1991 at a time when I started uh, running with the Rocky Horror crowd and being uh-huh. in a Rocky Horror cast and floor, you know, floor show cast and... I really related to this one because that is what it is like. You get all these personalities in in a room and they all have the same sort of ambition to create this thing, but then these personalities just cannot coexist. You know? <laughs> when you get one guy who's just super egotistical and he's the front band, uh, you know, that just causes all this tension. Um I just I love the characters in this movie. I love that they're each in you know, they're there's about 12 or so characters in this movie. They're all each individuals um, and, and very distinct in, in various ways. Um, I think this is a movie that he accomplished with this movie, what he failed to do with fame, which is 
right. put together right. A, a cast of unknowns who are musicians first, actors second, but really you know, not try to ask them to do too much in the way of acting. And I think a big part of that is the script. Uh, Roddy Doyle wrote the book, and this is part of a trilogy of books that he would write called the Barrytown Trilogy. Um, and there are movies made of the other two books, too. One was called The Snapper. One was called The Van. Oh, okay. Um, and I think, I know The Snapper was directed by Stephen Frears. I, he may have directed The Van, too. I don't, I'm not sure. I have to look that up. But uh, all of them feature Cole Meany as the dad. Yeah. So that's like the through line for these three films. But Cole Meany is so wonderful in this movie. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and so anyway, so uh, Roddy Doyle wrote this book, and they made very few changes from the book to the script. I mean, a lot of what you're seeing in the film, a lot of the dialogue you're hearing is word for word from the book. And uh, it's just, it's incredibly witty. It's, uh, the music, there's so much passion for the music on all ends of this film. Uh, they really... Um, really put together a great band for this movie and really resurrected a lot of songs that really hadn't been heard in a while at this time and created this energy. When, when the movie shows the band performing these songs, you really feel it. You really, I, I, I mean, this is, uh, I think, Alan Parker as a director of musicals just firing on all cylinders as a craftsman the way the, the uh, it's shot, the way it's edited, it was nom- it had one Academy Award nomination. That was for editing, richly deserved. Um, and, uh, and because I, I just remember walking out of the theater just on a high when this film was over. You know, and, like and it, and it hasn't aged badly at all. It's still so much fun to watch. Well, kind of in a similar way to The Wall in that the songs are so amazingly timeless. They're, they're going right. to be awesome and amazing hundreds of years from now, you've got to think. And so the fact that these new generation grabs that and makes it and makes it kind of their own, or it's their own interpretation, is really fun wonderful to behold. Right. The uh, Try a Little Tenderness uh, number is just one of the most uh, joyful uh, musical numbers y- you you can see it, it it's infectious you could tell uh how much uh the the this group these people how passionate they are about about not just music but soul music and the uh the manager of the group who's the lead who we 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 follow has so many uh great speeches about the essentialness of soul and the importance of soul and its importance uh to dublin and to the the underclass there mm-hmm. uh it, it is just so wonderful um and then to see this really solid band uh deliver on that and uh, like you said colin the it's so wonderful that the humor uh every it seems like every few lines there's just something that brings a smile or a giggle and uh you know and again from a director who's known for such heavy subjects the fact that he could do this well also mm-hmm. is really a testament. And I think you probably have to go through some dark places to finally get to a place like this and, mm-hmm. and really appreciate it. Because I, I remember when it came out, he said, you know, I've been making all these movies and I never have a smile on my face when I'm working. Well, this movie, I, every day I came to work smiling. 
and you can tell watching it like he loves this cast the uh he the, he derives so much humor just from the audition scenes uh the scenes with Andrew Strong who plays the lead singer in the film just what a dick he is uh is and you can tell like that <laughs> you wonder like I wonder if this tension carried on off screen and that's why it's so mm. palpable um i haven't really delved that deeply into the blu-ray deluxe edition that came out r- recently uh but um you know it's just there's something about all uh, the, the beauty of all these elements coming together for this film um so perfectly and it looks effortless that's the thing it's like you got all these unknown actors who are um just you know kind of thrown into this film um because of their musical ability and because they have some screen presence but they've probably never been in a film before and yet it looks like they're they're pros at it um and i mean not not that they're giving us so much to do there's not there's not really any big heavy dramatic moments there's no shoot the moon moments in this film or anything like that of of great you know this you could say like yeah this movie doesn't have much in the way of depth okay that's true but i don't care this is fun <laughs> i love these characters and um i think the i think it captures a point in time in dublin ireland that I don't think any other movie at that time it was really capturing. I think it helped put Ireland back on the map as far as uh, you know a place to observe and a place to look at. While you know at the same time, this is like you know, four years after the Joshua Tree U2's album blew up and helped put Ireland back on the map. And Sinead O'Connor, uh, the same thing. And this movie, uh, you know, kind of pushed that uh, as well. Uh, it's a very, it has a you know very beloved soundtrack, and uh, some people on that soundtrack went on to do great things. Um, Andrea Kaur is in the film um, as uh, she doesn't have any, she's not in the band, but she plays the uh, the manager's younger sister. Um, and uh, Andrew Strong, of course, went on to have a great recording career, as though he should. He was only 16 in this film. That's amazing. Yeah. You mean the Incredible. actor was? The actor, yeah, oh, the singer. I, no I mean, he's huh. only, that's a 16-year-old boy singing these songs with that unbelievable voice. Wow. It was originally going to be the, uh, the guy, uh, Jimmy Rabbit, the manager uh, of the band. He was originally going to play the part of the lead singer, um, and he sings a couple songs on the soundtrack, and he's got a really good voice too. But when they heard Andrew Strong, they're like, "It's got to be this guy." Well, I mean, he sounds like Joe Cocker. Oh, he does. I mean, it's an incredible voice this oh my guy's God. got. And then, of course, I think probably the biggest star—maybe not, you know—Andrea Core is a pretty big star, but uh, Glenn Hansard is mm-hmm. in this film as the the one of the guitarists, and he's kind of unrecognizable. Of course, we know him from Once, mm-hmm. and he's got shorter hair and a beard in that film, and that's kind of what he's looked like for the last twenty-five years. But in this, he's got like long hair tied in a ponytail, and mm-hmm. uh, and it's just—I think if you're if you you're curious to see Glenn's humble beginnings, uh, mm-hmm. this is a good place to start. This film also launched kind of a mini genre of uh, working class uh, UK youths um, making good and creative endeavors. Mm-hmm. So it, it was followed by by films like uh, B 
Billy Elliot and Kinky Boots and uh, Full Monty. the Full Monty yeah. and most recently Sing Street. And uh, I think all those films can kind of trace their DNA uh, back to this one. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting how like uh, how just uh, sometimes your attitudes towards people can be changed by the setting, by the foundation, you know? Like, um, I know these kind of films have had some kind, uh, level of criticism in that it's just making, like it's sort of undercutting the real destitute situation that a lot of the um, characters in these films have found themselves in and saying, oh, well, if you have a big dance performance or you do a great R&B, then things are going to be all right. So it does have to get some mild criticism from that corner. But ultimately, compare how you feel about how... I mean, I, I share your feeling, Colin, about how amazed and charmed and and how much I enjoy watching these kids play. And think about the differences, that it's different, that there are people living in Ireland in just this working-class environment versus the characters in Fame, who are people who spent an arm and a leg to be famous, mm-hmm. and they're out there in the middle of the city because they, they want to be celebrities, they want everyone to see them and so on. But whereas these people are playing music for the sheer joy and exuberance of it. I mean, clearly they're getting some value and enjoyment out of playing for crowds, and it certainly has that. But at its heart, it's a feeling and a sensibility that, oh my God, this music is great. To be able to share this music with others is great. And that's a moment where I think the sentiment of the characters in the movie and our sentiments in hearing this great music seem to match perfectly. And I kind of agree with you, Colin, that's kind of the intent that Parker was trying to do. And one of the things that this movie just does great. What's funny is that, you know, you're talking about like the kids you know, want to make this music, but what ultimately is does them in is like, they all want to make the music their way. Mm-hmm. And you got all these, you know, you got the, the saxophonist who wants to throw in these like jazz improvisations in the middle of uh, midnight hour, you know, and then you got the guitarists who don't want to wear the, the, the suit and ties anymore because they don't like that image. Um, and all the women are sleeping with the old guy. With the, tru- the trumpet player. The trumpet player. <laughs> knows Wilson Pickett. (laughs) Yeah, supposedly knows Wilson Pickett. Maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. (laughs) Um, And and I just, you know, you just know that it's not, you know that this band is not going to last. And I love that the end, you know, the sentiment is, you know, the, uh, the, um, the trumpet player when he says, yeah, we could have gone on, we would have been famous, that would have been predictable, but this way it's poetry. And he and Jimmy just says it's a pisser is what it is, and it's exactly what this is. It's like, ugh, there's so much great musical talent in Ireland and 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 places like that that will never reach any heights that are just that are just destined to be busking on Grafton Street forever, mm-hmm. and um, and it's and it's too bad, but at the same time there is kind of an Irish poetry to it, and it makes the movie more of a as much a fable as it is a musical. It does feel like a fable, maybe kind of like a Hans Christian Andersen style fable, something where like the characters have this like fleeting moment of greatness, but this, this graceful moment is all too ephemeral. 
all too transient, you know? And I mean, I think it just taps in so nicely to just the sense that even if it is just this brief period of time, these kids have this opportunity to have this great music and to share it with people. And uh, that's, a, that's a great sentiment that the movie presents and a sentiment I would enjoy returning to uh, again and again. Now, Alan Parker goes into a considerably different sensation in his next film that uh, goes to look at a historical period in his the movie called The Road to Wellville in It's a movie set in the 1850s where people are coming around from all around to Battle Creek, Michigan to try the newfangled medical remedies that are promoted by Dr. Kellogg and also to capitalize on the just started cereal craze. Speaking of craze, the visitors to Kellogg's spa encounter a series of zany events stemming from Kellogg's strange theories and even stranger family members. You know, sometimes it's like every movie he does, uh, Alan Parker does, is his first movie, because <laughs> literally every lesson about comedy that he learned and that he got right in the commitments is just thrown out the window here. I mean, this movie thrown is thrown against it, the wall. Against, well, this like, is hmm. supposed to be funny, but my God, it's like some twilight zone version of what comedy should be somebody told him you know what you know what what's funny is scatological humor let's have poop and fart jokes that's funny right and he's like okay let's let's put a bunch of those in how about funny people who look funny let's put anthony hopkins in buck teeth and see what happens then um how about you, you, you know uh slapstick how about this how about that so it's this uh this grouping of comic styles, every one of which fall flat, and then it at times just forgets to be a comedy because we're <laughs> mostly following uh, Matthew Broderick and Bridget Fonda as uh, kind of an uptight couple heading into this uh, environment, but we find out that they're that they had a child that died, and that uh, a, a, and. There are these like dark underpinnings that are only mentioned and not explored. And then we're back to this extraordinarily unfunny attempts at comedy. Uh, it, 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 it continues to blow my mind how Parker, who's done so much stuff that, that so much stuff that that, 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 that we've enjoyed on various different levels could do just something so sad. <laughs> You know, Alan Parker gave a little bit of a hint, a little bit of a preview in about what Welville was going to be about when he did Birdie. 
Because early in that movie, there's a scene where Bertie wants to engage with a scheme with Alfonso, and part of the scheme involves them wearing these incredibly goofy looking bird suits and as soon as you see them in these suits and when you keep watching them in the suits you just go oh no (laughs) really and that is every five minutes of the road to wellville you're just going i can't believe this is what i'm seeing like really you guys put this on film you expect people to enjoy this I mean, I mean, you have this situation, for example, where there's a couple, the, the very aptly named Mr. and Mrs. Lightbody, who are over here at this spa because the wife is distraught over her dead baby and the husband's also being distraught. But the way the wife decides to counteract this is by spiking his drinks with opiate, leading him to have opiate abuse and massive stomach cramps. And it's played for laughs. Why did you think opiate abuse is a funny topic? <laughs> and and it's, the thing is, the cast is operating particularly broad. There and the only one holy shit is it broad. The only one who could kind of pull this off is Matthew Broderick because he's got a musical theater background. He knows how to how to play to the uh, to the back rows. Everyone else seems incredibly lost in this style. This right, the back row thing is so apt. Every, I mean, he may be the most successful at it. But everybody in the movie is playing to the guy who's falling asleep 40 rows in the back in the balcony. Their every gesture is overdone and overplayed and over-enunciated in a way that would cause William Shatner to shake his head. <laughs> and just, it's so mannered and so pompously winking in a way to make, honestly, you know what? This movie could be called Wink, Wink, Nudge, Nudge, the movie. That's what it is. This is just the mere premise of it is is something that, like, to be fair, Parker has done really weird juxtapositions, as we've already talked about. But the idea of basically making a merchant ivory attempt to do scatological humor is, uh, but do it in this kind of, like, very, like, <laughs> snivelly kind of way that was just a raw move, man. That just, that was, that movie had nine strikes against it before it was even conceived in someone's, uh, like, um, serial addicted mind, you know? <laughs> well, I guess I'm going to be the one who comes out in defense of this film. Oh, but I'm not, guy. But, but no, 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 no. I, 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 I can't convince you that, you know, I'm not going to say you're incorrect, you're wrong. No, no, no. I find this movie just a fascinating failure. Um, I mean, it, it, you're, much of what you said is actually true, but yet I find this movie compulsively watchable and, and very interesting um, just because of, like, that it got made by a major studio, by a major director. He, he Again, this is another case of you can tell he had final cut on this. Like, you know, um, and it's the looniest thing he's done since Bugsy Malone. Um where you just you can't believe it exists, uh, but I do like. I mean, I I I think I think Hopkins is 
I mean, obviously he's playing a character who's hard to like, but it's also hard to notice. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard not to notice how much fun he's having playing it. I think he's having a ball playing this part because he's been. You're right. You mentioned Merchant Ivory. He's been stuck in these Merchant Ivory movies mm-hmm. uh, at this time. You know, Howard's End, Remains of the Day, and now he gets to play this kind of whack job. Uh, you know that that is just out to completely out to lunch and well, i like bugs bunny right Sigmund Freud. oh you right. don't you don't know how right you are apparently uh hopkins chose the buck teeth look on his own after seeing a bugs bunny cartoon no way yeah, wow. yeah. and i think this is um a case of parker trying to do you know brad you're gonna scoff at this but i think it's it's, it's him trying to do robert altman i think it's scoff <laughs> because it, it's clearly more of a focus on behavior than story and plot. I could see Altman having a ball in this kind of setting with these kinds of characters and creating this kind of over, you know, this this kind of broad comedy. Uh, whether or not it would be good, I don't know. But I could see, like, I think there's definitely an Altman inspiration in this going on in this film. Actually, I, I do. I do think that that's a good point, but it, it's bringing to mind some of my least favorite Altman films, right. like oh, right. Ready to Wear and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, 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 yeah. We we also haven't mentioned uh, Mr. Uh, Dana Carvey and his uh, mm-hmm. addition to the film. He he plays what some he looks like uh, a grown-up extra from Oliver Twist's uh <laughs> dirty dirty dick D- dickensian grown children or something mm-hmm. and he's this perverted guy who uh with with no with, with his teeth falling out and he's you know he's uh leering, leering at the, at the right right in the ba- in yeah. the baths i mean and He's and like Carvey is generally kind of a likable presence on screen, but you know, boy, it's like you just every time he's on screen, it's like, uh, make it stop. Well, the funny thing is, is that Dana Carvey may be one of the best actors of the movie because everyone else is like looks like they're playing to the cheap seats, and no one, no one is worse than this than John Cusack, who's playing a guy who's. Uh, trying to be this real smart operator to capitalize and get a get in on a serial business while also like remaining kind of zany but he's so spectacularly bad at it like there's a sequence where he's talking to matthew broderick's character and he puts out an expression of his face to kind of show what a smart gangster like figure he is but that expression is one of the top five stupidest things i've ever seen a person do to his face <laughs> this side out of a tommy wiseau movie <laughs> yeah i no, i agree he's he's definitely uh the weakest part of the film in terms of the actors and the cast um but i kind of there's a part of me that has a like perverse fascination of watching john cusack overact and and being miscast it's not the last time it's going to happen it wasn't the first time um and but i also like and i'm also fascinated with like this time period and the fact that and, and just what health was like at this time and just sort of the barbaric and <laughs> um just how ancient you know a lot of these machines and ideas that came about were to keep people healthy um i think the movie is i think the movie is really wonderful when it explores that i think i think when it's about that i think it really works legitimately um because i think that i think i I can't think of any other movies 
really that explored that as as immensely as this did. I feel like there's an authenticity to the to the depiction of it um, with this film. Well, the one thing that comes to mind that ex- explores that uh, is the old Saturday Night Live sketch. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Theodoric of York, medieval barber, <laughs> yes, yes. And, and with his bleedings yes. and whatnot. yes. <laughs> Played by uh, Steve Martin. Right, right, right. No, that's I. I always I was thinking of that when I watched this <laughs> film too. Yeah. Um, no, I. You know, I can't. This is one of those movies I can't really defend, but I like it for some reason. I just think it's such an odd film uh, that is just like I can't believe this got made, and I'm kind of glad it did. Ultimately, I kind of think that the movie might be successful in its production and in setting, but. The characters and the situations and the lines, they're so bad. They're just so horrible. One, one line that I have to go and mention is a line where, like, Bridget Fonda is talking to her, um, friend Cameron, played by Cameron Mannheim. Oh, oh, by the way, who is this, like, monstrous platonic ideal of the, um, girlfriend of in a romantic comedy like in that she's like slightly dumpier slightly homelier and way way hornier including like talking about how much she gets stimulated from riding a bicycle that she feels the need to describe in intimate detail but meanwhile but okay in any case Bridget Fonda is talking to her about her problems with her husband and she lets loose with this line I'm sick and tired of being treated like a mattress in a hole with a hole in it that he puts himself in. And it's just like somebody wrote that? They filmed that? This got bro- this kind of sentiment got broadcast that this is something that someone would say and someone would think someone else would think? This is a two-hour train wreck of ever-loving atrocities. <laughs> um there in there is a like a moment where Matthew Broderick does something kind of subtle, and I was just about to go give credit for him when in the very next shot, you see him walk into the room wearing a masturbating jockstrap. You know, ultimately, this... The best way I can phrase on this movie is is based upon some lyrics from the classic ACDC song, Big Balls, that go, uh, and I quote, Some balls are held for charity, some held for fancy dress, but it's the balls held for pleasure that are the ones I like the best. Now, if you heard these lines and your immediate response is to laugh uproariously, well, hey, you know what? You have your movie. Uh, otherwise, I recommend you just stay far, far away from the road to Hellville, which is what I'm going to be calling this movie from now on. So after this serial-based atrocity, Parker returns into a type of film that he's a lot more comfortable with and one which he ends up being much more successful at with his film Evita in 1996. She made me real And the ground beneath 
This is Parker's movie version of the popular stage musical about a power-mad, scheming, attention-lusting woman who became a national icon. In other words, it's the part Madonna was born to play. Well, much like our discussion of The Wall, here here is a film that has something, you know, a Broadway play, uh, an album, music already that it need that it will be fitting into. So it, it's it, the, our appreciation of this is also going to be dependent on your appreciation of what Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice uh, has done with the original work, which I think stands with Jesus Christ Superstar as some of their best work and a real uh, great moment in in musical theater. And I think they have in turn made uh, one of the great musicals uh, of the modern era. And um, and surprisingly enough, Al, as you, you insinuated, this uh, does star Madonna. So you might be asking yourself, well, well, Brad, I've, I've seen Madonna in movies trying to act, and it generally doesn't go well. But here's the thing. The movie is entirely sung from start to finish. So we don't have to deal with her dialogue delivery. We don't. Her from talking. No, then she doesn't. She she sings, which she can do. Now she play as you also said. She plays a character that has eerie similarities to her own public persona. Uh, in that uh, the, ver- the the first part of the movie is basically about uh, Eva Duarte sleeping her way to the top, going from being a poor uh, outcast uh, to uh, becoming a uh, commercial star and then a, uh, a famous actress, and then finally uh, catching the eye of a military um, up-and-comer uh, Juan Perón, who will eventually become a dictator of Argentina with the help of, uh, of his uh, charismatic wife. So you've got this going, but I think what really sends puts this movie on high footing are the two other parts of uh, of the cast. Um, Antonio Banderas is absolutely wonderful in this. He plays a character named Shay, who may or may not be meant to uh, represent Shay Guevara, oh. and creates a fascinating uh, structural component because he is the both he is both narrator and critic. Because since we're seeing the movie unfolds it unfold through the eyes of Eva, and basically as an audience we should be questioning what's you know what should we feel about what's going on here and what it says about basically encroaching fascism the antonio banderas character through his narration uh is doing self-criticism of the film he he's he's uh, plays, uh, he can appear at any point as a movie, pro- uh, as a film projector, uh, or as a, uh, busboy, or as a revolutionary, just at any point in the movie. And just when, uh, you're getting the Madonna point of view of it, he turns around and says, wait a minute. Oh, nice. Mm-hmm. Nice. And then as, as Juan Perón, uh, Jonathan Price is magnificent. He also, has um a background in uh in uh, musical theater and, and uh he uh, plays a character that could be 
very unsympathetic, but because he kind of has the same thing that Gene Hackman has when playing villains, uh, a certain, there's a certain vulnerability. Uh, he provides this character with, uh, extra levels and the combination of all of this and of one of the more complicated, um, depictions of political maneuvering of, uh, fascism, communism, uh, revolution, I, I think, uh, has created, uh, a, a, an extraordinary work that's one of Parker's best. Huh. Like, I'm really, it's really cool that you mentioned about, like, the, the use of the Che character. The idea that Che goes and, like, comments right in the middle when she and Eva Perone are at their height of self-promotion, that he gives that extra layer of depth. That is a really cool sign. I'm very glad to hear that that's a component of the film. For instance, there's a line where um, he's playing a reporter and he says, uh, who did you sleep, dine with yesterday? <laughs> <laughs> right. Nice. Nice. Yeah. I, Brad, you clearly have a greater appreciation for Weber than I do. Um, I Every time I try watching Evita, it's a struggle. I mean, I... There's a lot of things I admire about it, but uh, I think there's I think you're right. Your uh, appreciation of it and your enjoyment of it does depend on how much you like the material that's that's there. Um, I, I'm just not a big Weber fan. I do like Jesus Christ Superstar, um, but there's something about this. Whenever I watch it, I just I'm not invested in it. Hmm. I just I'm I'm invested in watching Madonna try to give a good performance and i think she does and yeah okay she's singing so it's not much of a stretch but i do think while she's singing she is doing it with conviction and with with good you know with a, giving it a good performance there is a lot of emotion coming through her uh that makes it uh you know that i think makes it a very a more credible performance than people might care to admit um, and I'm a Madonna. I, I like Madonna and I, I, I own some Madonna CDs. <laughs> I'll say that. Um, I do enjoy her. I, 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 I mean, when she's a musician, when, or, and when she's a singer, I, I think she's, I, I admire her ambitions. Um, but, and, and I think this is clearly the best. This and Desperately Seeking Susan, clearly the two best mm -hmm. movies she was ever in. Well, okay, I like a League of Their Own too. Okay, maybe there's there's a few, but <laughs> but um, uh, I'm just not invested in her as a character in this. I don't know. I just I don't. I when I watch the movie, I just I'm I'm I, I just I struggle through it. Well, she's a but, very unsympathetic lead. I yeah, mean, Eva, and, Eva Perone as uh, right. depicted in the film. Right. And yeah. I think probably I just have a problem with a movie that is all sung. Ah. Maybe that's mm -hmm. my problem. I think, I mean, because I like musicals. I'm, I'm not like Al. I don't have a, a reaction against them in any way. In fact, I was on uh, the Fresh Perspectives podcast last week, shameless plug, uh, talking about once. And I said that I, I root for musicals. I root for them to be good because it takes balls to make one. If you're if you're going to make a musical, you are taking a risk that most directors would steer clear of. Um, this is not a risky project for Alan Parker. This is a pretty much a 
a guaranteed home run. He, this is a sacred Broadway cow that he's doing here, and he's got all the production in the world, and he's got all the you know the money to back it up. And it's basically this is a movie that a lot of people wanted to see, and the the fact that Madonna is being cast in it is uh, you know was very much a, a, a big curiosity about that. Will mm-hmm. she actually pull this one off? Um, and I just don't feel like this. This doesn't feel as risky a project for him as, you know, something like The Wall was or Bugsy Malone or even Fame for that matter. Um, it feels like one, it's his most, it's his safest film, I think. Um, and therefore it doesn't, it's not, I don't know, I just don't, I just don't click with it as much. Now, I do think the strongest stuff in the movie is when it's in montage mode. Mm-hmm. When it's in montage mode and, you know, it's on fire. I think it's, it's some of the, it, it's full of energy and I'm with it. I like watching the story unfold in condensed time. Um, and I do think there are melodies in this song, in this, in the music that do stay in my head for a while, as, you know, a lot of Weber's stuff does. Even if I'm not a fan, I, I, you know, of course, I, 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 the guy knows how to craft a melody. Um, but I just, for some reason, I just not invested in this one when I watch it. Well, you know, as, as we saw with the unfortunate, uh, Phantom of the Opera film, uh, mm-hmm. a great musical does not necessarily lead to a, a great movie musical. But I, I think you also have the fact that Alan Parker, is specifically so much in his element here. Yeah. And he's bringing all these musical moments that he's been doing so far. There's even, you know, some, you know, even with the, uh, the fascistic, uh, elements of Evita sometimes echo those, uh, in the wall. Uh, but I mean, y- yes, it, it, it's a, it's a piece that has become a standard. So where it was risky was in probably in the original Andrew Lloyd Webber, Tim Rice uh, mm. conception of it. But then, you know, this this is probably the largest scale of all Alan Parker's films uh, sure. with, you know, cast of thousands and, uh, you know, epic uh, period piece and, and, and location. That's uh, old fashioned kind of filmmaking that often falls flat today and i think what what we i think the, the fact that they chose parker as the director really brought this film to life hmm right i mean it makes me think that like he, the idea of having a cast of thousands is obviously something that the stage play was not able to bring out so right. in a way this may be like in some of his more ambitious efforts it's something he's familiar with but he expands on it to really put a place and a time right and and he also does things that could not be done on stage with the shay character like i mentioned before shay keeps reappearing in various formats whereas on stage he wouldn't have time to keep because he's singing throughout so he wouldn't have time to come back for a hundred costume changes but here he could literally uh, show show up anywhere, and um, and and that cum, uh, accumulates in this uh, wonderful uh, waltz scene, where uh, Eva has uh, Eva's fallen ill by the end of the film, and uh, and and falls unconscious, and we we go into her head for a direct confrontation 
between uh, Eva and Shay, basically in the form of a dance, but lyrically in the form of a battle of ideas. Oh, that's that's pretty cool. And there was a song written for the film, right? You Must Love Me was the mm. song written for right. the film. Uh, because they had to do that for Madonna, so there would be like an a Oscar singer, nomination. An Oscar nomination, yeah. right? Um, and that, and, it, and oh, can, every musical does that, these right? Days. Well, and you can tell it doesn't belong in the film. You can tell it's not part of the piece. There's like a totally different like rhythm to it, and a totally different feel. It doesn't feel like Weber really. Did Weber write it or no? Uh, that I don't know. I, yeah. yeah, just uh, yeah. Um, so I don't know. This there's. I mean, I love. Uh, it's beautifully produced. Uh, it's on a technical level. It, it does everything right. I mean, it, you know, he made the best movie. I think probably anybody possibly could with this. Um, but it just. I think it's the. I think it's the material and just the, the, the fact that it's all sung that kind of keeps me from being fully. English and my prejudice is some of my favorite musicals sure. are like that. Yeah, musicals like uh, Les Misérables. Right. Right. Yeah. I just want to give you guys like just rapid fire things on related on on the film. I while I've not seen the movie and never will, <laughs> I did see the stage play a sta- done in the Victory Gardens court in the court theater done for the Victory Gardens production. And I want to bring it up because they did a very cool take on what you're describing, Brad, about Che's appearances. At different points, he would appear in the back of the audience or he'd mm. appear in the aisle as like an usher. So he did that same, a similar thing, but in a theatrical right. manner, right? Um, and then finally, I, my favorite Andrew Lloyd Webber is actually not done by him, but it's done off this wonderfully hilarious comedy by Mel Smith in the late 80s called um, The Tall Guy. And it features Jeff Goldblum, who is a guy, uh, an actor, American actor, struggling to make it in, in England in, on the stage. And he lucks in, sort of, to a production of an Andrew Lloyd Webber-esque take of the Elephant Man, called Elephant! Exclamation point. And this is a wonderful disaster piece of here, including pitch-perfect songs like he's packing his truck. He has the kind of face he won't forget. And the thrilling finale. Somewhere up in heaven, there's an angel with big ears. <laughs> a wonderful, wonderful yeah, movie. Featuring it's a really a very, funny movie. Featuring yeah. a mm-hmm. very fun performance by a young uh, Emma Thompson. As well. Yeah. Yeah. So when you look at Parker and he takes, it seems that if you think that like he took the commitments and diluted the musical part to make Evita, the other remnant part is the hard scrabble Irish part, which is the subject of his next movie, Angela as Ashes in 1999. It's based upon author Frank McCourt's autobiography of growing up in an Irish family that's so destitute that they actually have to move back to Ireland because they can't cut it in America. And now young Frank has to go navigate to adulthood while dealing with these oppressive conditions and the endless compromises that his mother must make for to accommodate the family, especially in dealing with their alcoholic father. 
Now, this is a case where I think Parker's alchemy also works because it's very, very easy considering the setting and the story for this to become an exercise in just horror and destitution and how oppressive their environment is to the extent that someone can turn to the camera and say in an Irish accent, have you ever seen such cruelty <laughs> a la Blazing Saddles? But <laughs> I think Parker manages to go and make this work and really feel for this guy's maturation as he has to go and navigate these, like, family issues. Well, and, and he does, but I, I almost want to call back to uh, Angel Heart uh, for his skills at world building, which he repeats here. Yeah. Because we, we are going to be dealing with some of the most tragic and, and heaviest stories, um, but what but we're able to be brought into this because the uh, the way the film looks is so convincing of this dingy uh, Irish uh, slum that uh, it seems to be constantly at night and and in this uh, in in this kind of visual disrepair yeah. that. Uh, that, that 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 we're able to get into this environment because the the set design the way it's filmed is is so confident and strong yeah like one of his um parker's abilities is to enhance the kind of like source material and i think he found a really good bit of source material with frank mccourt's screenplay he also wrote the screenplay and it's based off his autobiography one i think particularly wonderful evocative example is that in a way, you could almost call the movie A River Runs Through It because the first floor of the house they end up living in is perpetually beset upon with water, like a couple inches of water. But the kids' response is kind of wonderful because every time they go in, even if they have a had a bad day, they just keep splashing and kicking water at each other to the extent that even when Frank Frank's character later in life comes back, even though it's he's grown up now, he still kicks the water a little bit. It's like, you know, this is home for me, you know? Yeah, <clears throat> this is a movie I'm kind of back and forth on. Like, I think it's, uh, like you said, the production is flawless. And um, and I think the movie is well cast enough. I, but I, I'm not sure about Robert Carlyle as the father. I, I struggle with, like, the point of view here. Um, because on one hand, it's just all this misery and everything, but at the same time, uh, we're sort of meant to understand that he's has this love for his father, even though he's just drinking away the family's earnings and babies are dying and, you know, just every, like this family is just in complete disarray. And I think there's some shortcomings in the screenplay to help to really kind of help me figure out what where the main character is coming from with this with having to tell this story i think what's difficult here is the tragedy is front-loaded mm-hmm. so the the film starts at the lowest point i mean yeah. it, it it starts there they're in america 
uh, and one of their uh, children has, has died, uh, malnutrition or something like that. And so then they take the boat uh, back to Ireland where they, there might be some opportunities with the, the IRA, actually. And, and, and very, they're very soon in, in an even worse situation, and two more of their, their children die. And, and, and this all happens very early in the film, so we're, we're kind of inundated with this misery and the the film eventually as the boy kind of grows up and has a little more agency you know looks for ways out of this but it's it's rough on the viewer to kind of climb out of what begins as such a depressing story and and, and if you if you're coming into this not knowing it's based on a book Mm -hmm. not knowing the story or anything you'd be watching the first hour and 20 minutes going where is this going where is the hope what is it's just one piece of misery after another what am i going to get out of this it's not until the boy uh enrolls in, or you know gets into a writing class mm-hmm. where you start to see okay maybe this is gonna get us somewhere out of here um it's a lot uh, and and i mean that's the book i mean you know parker's doing the book so by no means is that a flaw on, on on his part or Frank McCourt's really, but it's just I feel like something got lost in translation between the book and the film, where um, where I as a viewer am not sure who I'm supposed to really kind of sympathize with or empathize with, um, and but at the same time uh, I, I I think the performances are all are are, are really terrific. And it's 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 really well shot and well edited, and so it's, it's a one Alan Parker movie that has a score by John Williams. It's a really beautiful score, yes. and I was really moved at the the last scene, not the scene of him on the boat, but the scene at night when he sees the two versions of himself on yeah. the street. Mm-hmm. I thought that was so beautiful, and I like I like was so moved by that. It's, it kind of made the journey worth it. Uh, but it's, I think it's a journey that works better, and this is an old cliche, but it, it, I think it's just, is a case of a, a story that works better as a book than as a film. Um, and, I mean, and especially, I mean, I think, you know, when you talk about the movie being front loaded with tragedy, and you hear, you know, the narration talking about, you know, I was an Irish child, the only thing worse of being having an Irish childhood is an Irish Catholic childhood, or an Irish, you know, um, the, the the only thing worse than a horrible child is a horrible Irish Catholic childhood, and I think Angela's Ashes is kind of one of those sort of it's almost become like an Irish cliche in a way that's like hearts and shamrocks and uh you know if you're if you're Irish you must love, love Angela's Ashes and you know you ah. kiss the Blarney Stone mm. and you know that kind of thing, um, and so like when I watch it today it's almost like. It's almost comically tragic. It's like so. It's like steeped in 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 Irish tragedy that I, it's like, oh God, we're we're gonna watch this now. You know, it does um, flirt with that feeling for me. Yeah, sure. mm-hmm. and I think I'm with you, Colin, in that it goes and angles towards misery with uh, 
not a lot of nuance to it in the beginning. Yeah. And, and it gets yeah. a better footing as the kid gets older and he does more. I think that's things. it. I think the movie gets off on the wrong foot in a way. But I, I mean, I don't know how, I, I, I wouldn't know how to fix it because that's the material that we're dealing with. Right. When the main character's name is the author. Right. The author's name himself. Uh, we expect probably even more, uh, fealty to the book than normal. Yeah. And I think Parker does a, does an admirable job of trying to offset all this misery with moments of levity. Um, not all of it works, but I really appreciate the attempt. You know, um, there's a lot to admire here, but I'm I I feel like I should read the book instead. You know, uh, have any have any of us or read the book? I have not. No, I have no. not. No. <laughs> I'm the, I have a, just a quick question. We may not have an answer for it, but. Uh, what are uh, Angela's ashes? What I is actually, that supposed to be? <laughs> Apparently, uh, this is the first part of a... Uh, the, there were two books. And the story continues with uh, Frank becoming a successful writer in, in America, and eventually uh, his mother dies and uh, is cremated, and that's where uh, Angela's ashes comes into play is is when he has to deal with the death of his mother but this does oh, okay. not happen in the film yeah <laughs> the film has stopped by the time we, we would have gotten to this point ah okay i see yeah in the way this movie could have been titled angela's compromises because i find the movie so insightful in how it shows all the specific kind of sacrifices and the deaths that angela must go to in order for her family to survive and and then the main character's like source of pride and the way that conflicts and with like his attitudes towards his mother is just really really well done and i think it's phenomenally borne out by the performance of emily watson as angela she's just magnificent in expressing just all these conflicts and um how the compromises have affected her, but it's all done, you know, just so subtly and so well. She's an absolute treasure. And any difficult, and I I agree, Kyle, that that, that there are some difficulties in entering this film, but but her performance, as just about every performance she's given, is is incredible. I I think that, yeah, I think in terms of performance, um, I don't know why Robert Carlyle just kind of bugged me in this movie. I, I don't know why, but <laughs> but I do love the scene of him leaving the family uh, to run an errand, and we know what is really going to happen. Yeah, and right. I think that scene is played magnificently. There's a level where um, the child appreciates the father, which ties in in an interesting way, maybe intellectually, but. And maybe not so much emotionally, but where the thing that I think he he likes or the child most remembers about his father is the stories he tells. These wild, tall tales, and and you know, in a in a way that like the birds and birdie, it's a way of showing that a way for the child can escape out of their dreary, oppressive environment. And when you think about that, the fact that this is a person who grew up to become a writer, maybe a fascinating thing to go. Um, Think about it. Yeah. Maybe it might not be worth people to watch two hours of patented Irish misery to <laughs> get to that point. 
But I think Alan Parker does a, an effective job in uh, elaborating on these uh, themes and having uh, showing the value of stories, even if the stories are being told and are about this such a dour environment. I think this gives a real value out to going through the story on in movie form of Angela's Ashes. And we can end the podcast right here, right? Yeah, Colin, <laughs> wouldn't that be great? But unfortunately, Alan Parker has one more film, The Life of David Gale, in 2003. It's a story of in the three days before David Gale, who is a prominent anti-death penalty advocate, is set to be executed. He asks for an interview with a prominent reporter and tells her there's a lot more to his story than at first glance. Can she get to the truth in time to stave off his execution? And what are the forces that are keeping her from finding it? So I can't fully blame Alan Parker for this because, you know, so many bad movies are bad because of uh, various points along the way where it, 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 they, they lose touch with what the movie is about. You have a, it's just not well made. The film doesn't come together. But I, I, what we've got here is a script that just should never have been filmed. It's, flaw <laughs> it, it's deeply flawed at the script stage in that it wants to accomplish something that it just does not. And I, I guess if anyone wants to subject themselves to this film, we should say that we can't talk about it without going into some major uh, spoiler territory. I, I do before, yes, before we get to the ending, which is, until Birdie, one of the more <laughs> astoundingly terrible endings that have ever been put in on a movie screen, I want to point out that the rest of the movie kind of stinks too. <laughs> it, for one thing... The writing is clearly done in a grade D or grade F Aaron Sorkin wannabe level. You know, these people are attempting to say these clever things uh, at this really fast pace, but it just all tends to fall really, really flat. Like there's a particular part where these two guys are trying to out clever each other. And, and one of them says, um, Oh yeah, I don't know if I'd buy into that simile. And the, his uh, uh, friend replies saying, actually, it's a metaphor. And I remember hearing that and thinking and maybe even saying, you know, well, you know, actually, it is a fuck off movie. Yeah, this is painful to watch. Uh, this was I remember walking out of the theater on this movie and just been, what the hell was that? Uh, it is just not just reprehensible, but uh unthinkable how many talented people got roped into it and uh and managed to all turn in horrifically bad performances we're talking kevin spacey kate winslet 
Laura Linney. These are three great actors, especially Winslet. Uh, you know, this is, but she is giving a, a bad performance in this movie. And that, that, that's unforgivable. And her character's name is Bitsy Bloom. <laughs> I mean, good. That's the name of the big reporter that Kevin Spacey wants to, I want to talk to her. She knows how to, she's a great journalist. Bitsy Bloom? Like, right there. That's in the script. That's on, like, page three, probably. Yeah. We also I mean, need to yeah, offer... Bitsy Bloom. Yeah. Her uh, reporting is as good as her grape juice product. Oh, we, my. We, we also need to offer derision for whoever did uh, Kevin Spacey's hairpiece. Oh, this. God. Because <laughs> he can't outact whatever the hell is on his head. Oh, no. He he, <laughs> he does the, the worst performance of his career in this film, uh, particularly at a scene where he's drunk dialing uh, yes. at a phone booth. It is just awful uh it is painful to watch it is it is like a, it is take one of an actor who's had his on the set of the his first film on the first day and hasn't <laughs> and just can't figure it out yet and it pains me to say that i'm a kevin spacey fan um i'm a fan of everybody involved in this movie but yeah look kevin spacey does has done great things but one thing kevin spacey cannot do is play a impaired person whether someone who's dumb or in this case someone who's drunk this is one of the worst <laughs> drunken attempted uh, performances of a drunk person he's and he's clearly actorly staggering around as if he's on the set of the starship enterprise and then alternating between these these inappropriate Chaucer quotes or Socrates quotes? Oh, Tim Robbins gave a much more fluent and nuanced drunk performance in the last half hour of the Hudsucker Proxy than Spacey <laughs> does in this scene. Uh, this, But this was at a downward, this was at a, a, a rock bottom point in Spacey's career. Like, this was the uh, the era of K-Pax and the shipping news and oh. pay it forward. I mean, you know, this is like, what happened to this guy? Um, but, I mean, but, Thank and, God for Netflix. Yeah, and then and Parker's directing in this is just awful. I mean, the weird transitions between the present day and the flashbacks where the camera goes spiraling backwards upside down and we flash these words across the screen like murder, rape, innocent, and then in the third act, almost. <laughs> uh, like, are you kidding me? Um, yeah. And... and, and you know, and I, I'm sure they all thought that this was this was a noble film because this is taking on the death penalty. This is a mainstream Hollywood film taking on a very serious subject. It's like abortion, uh, probably people, like Oscar bait. Oh, very much so. I mean, look at the cast. You look at the director. Of course, they all thought they were they were gonna you know be on the way to the red carpet, but. Um, and I, I'm sure they all had the best of intentions, but this movie makes death. This movie does for anti-death penalty activists what Battlefield Earth did for Scientologists. <laughs> this is not helping. Uh, everybody in this movie is an idiot, uh, and I don't care what. At best, at best, mm -hmm. and you want. I mean. But there's also this kind of ugly cynicism to it, too. I mean, especially, I mean, we're, we can't, I guess, if we're going to talk about the end of the film. I mean, that is where, uh, I mean, it's already ineptly made and poorly acted. But then you pile on that ending 
and it's a you want I mean a slap in the face. I mean Birdie was just a stylistic mistake, but this is a moral mistake. Well, it right. doesn't just ru- the ending doesn't just ruin the ending. It, it, it to the extent that anything was salvageable, it ruins everything that uh, that that came before it. Uh, because and, and here's where we have to get into uh, spoiler territory. Yeah. Let, let's the, give up before we do, okay. Brad. I just want to give you, you know, how we try to ta- tell people to, you know, sometimes you can uh, help a movie by stopping watching a movie at a certain point, like we did with Birdie. Here you should stop the movie at the zero zero colon zero zero point, <laughs> and don't don't even don't even stop. No, us. no. But, <laughs> right. now now on to spoilers. Right, because because the premise is that Kevin Spacey and Laura Linney they are part of a uh, anti death penalty movement. Uh, Kevin Spacey is accused of rape, falsely accused of rape. His life has fallen apart. Laura Linney, uh, her character has been diagnosed with leukemia. Uh, she is dying. So what this brilliant movie decides would be a great scheme for the anti-death penalties is to say, can we prove that an innocent person was ever killed, uh, was ever uh, put to death by the state, uh-huh. and uh, the premise is that up to this point we cannot prove that, but through this scheme they will, which is for Laura Linney to commit suicide in a way that makes it look like Kevin Spacey has killed her, so that Kevin Spacey, whose life is ruined, can in, can be put to death. This is part of his plan. He wants to be put to death, so that then they could point out to the people, ah, an innocent man has been put to death. Now, if you're listening There's to this just description, one or fifteen problems. Right, with is this plan. that it's stupid? <laughs> right, is that and is that is that beyond how the, the the immorality, beyond how it makes death penalty activists look, beyond whatever it has to say about the death penalty. It's just so irredeemably stupid that you can't even go on from there. Yeah, it's just a bad. It's forget about it politically. It's a bad thriller, mm-hmm. you know. And it's like you, you, it's you're made. To, it asks a lot of the audience, and I can suspend my disbelief. I, you know, for for a movie for a thriller, um, if it's if it's got all the right elements, but. You know, this movie is asking a lot of the audience to believe, you know, the sort of paper trail that Kevin Spacey leaves for, uh, leaves behind for Bitsy Bitsy Bloom Bloom. to figure out. And her sort of, her, one of the funniest scenes in the movie, and it's not supposed to be funny at all, it's where towards the end where she goes to this shack where this mysterious dude in a cowboy hat named Dusty lives <laughs> of course. Uh, watching uh, old VHS tapes of The Tonight Show and Hee Haw. Um, and <laughs> she's going through all his VHS tapes trying to find one, and they're all labeled with like names of TV shows that are conveniently all universal products, by the way. Uh, and uh, one says Ed on it, and I think that's a universal movie with a, ch- a chimpanzee playing baseball, uh, but it's actually Mr. Ed, but, right. uh, but Universal wanted to get that little subtle thing in. Anyway, awesome. Um, uh, Kate Winslet is overacting a storm in this scene, putting in all these VHS tapes and hitting play. And, oh, God, it's the Tonight Show. No, that's not it. I'm going to put this, this other tape in. Oh, no, it's Mr. Ed. God. Oh, oh. And Must just, have been a Letterman fan. Oh, my God. 
And then finally she opens a desk drawer when she's just like frantically looking. She opens a desk drawer and there's in this in this padded envelope is uh, an envelope with her name on it. And she opens it and there's a tape in it and there's a scene. Um, and that's where she finds... I mean, it's just so convoluted and contrived and there's just not a single moment of believability in this film at all. And I'm just, I'm shocked at the talent behind it. Kate Winslet is acting up a storm. Her character is meant to be a hardened cynic. Yes. Who turns around to David Gale's side. There is no turning around. There is a schizophrenic psychotic break where she <laughs> goes from being cynical to him to adoring David Gale right. and wailing at his, the horribleness <laughs> of his plight. And you're where the fuck did this come from? Right. Well, yeah. she, she's also uh, keeps hysterically crying at this videotape. Even yeah. two scenes after we've seen her watch the same thing. So we can maybe we can buy if she's watching this person getting murdered, that she might have that reaction the first yeah. time. But uh, they, they played the tape a bunch of times and we learn a little bit more each time. But also each time Bitsy's watching it, she continues to go into a crying jag. I'm like, you've seen this <laughs> right, already. I know, right? It's like, <laughs> like every single time, right? Yeah, uh. like the 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 sinister cowboy, um, opera loving sinister cowboy, <laughs> right? Exactly, yeah, yeah. he's a sinister presence. Who first off, like, is Mister playing? Is having a sinister environment where you have Mister Ed and Tonitro videotapes? Some attempt by Parker to make a Bugsy Malone treatment of like a serial killer from Seven, <laughs> but then also. He's a sinister guy. He's clearly done nefarious things to set the scheme in motion. But the movie wants to have you believe at the end that he's crying in the opera. So, no, he's a good guy. He's a nice guy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then, like, just to have Kevin Spacey as a participant in this whole event of staging, like, the idea – again, Brad, you're so right on the st- basic stupidity – you, oh, this is to prove an innocent man, a guy who's innocent. Yeah, he's innocent of murder. He just stands by while watching his like partner kill herself for 15 minutes. But he's an innocent guy. <laughs> no, the dude's a fucking monster. <laughs> like, like, even if he didn't commit the crime, you should definitely keep him away from the population on general <laughs> principle alone. But actually, to me, the movie's absolute nadir and the shot most shocking thing i've ever seen of alan parker a guy who's done all these violence and went to so many dark places it happens a little bit earlier where laura linney is frustrated at her group that they fail to stay in execution of another person who's i believe they cross an x through a um a slightly overweight african-american lady i think that's what the picture but then she goes on a rant by saying damn it like, our cause could work so well if we didn't have such losers as people we're defending. And I'm just, what? Yep. My God, Todd Solons could not have done something so bitterly cynical on, on that kind of a sentiment. Like, if you literally were a conservative group who literally dedicated, like, a hundred monkeys to write the worst thing you could have about do-gooders against the death penalty. You could not make a worse scene about that. Yeah, and and the sermonizing in this movie is unbelievable. I mean, it just, it's like, 
NPR the movie, you know, <laughs> in, a, in the worst possible way. Uh, no, this is a, a, just, it's so tragic that this will most likely be Alan Parker's final film. Yeah, m- much like we, we just wish Gene Hackman would make one more film. <laughs> right. so that, oh, welcome yes. to Mooseport. Just so that David Gale is not his last film, Alan Parker, please do one more. You're better than this, right? And I and well, I guess he he's retired from filmmaking because he t- he does not want to deal with finding money or anything like that. He's just kind of run out of steam, um, so he's taken a painting, and he's finding a lot of pleasure in that. Um, and I I think I the ideal thing would be for him to just make a film independently don't you don't have to raise a lot of money don't have to knock on a lot of doors just grab a couple of cameras and grab a your producer and and you know crank out a script of some kind and get gene hackman to star in it and then just make it quietly just make it on your own and if you guys like it then put it out there if you don't like it then you know it's fine but just try please make make (laughs) how about making the logan version of mississippi burning sequels (laughs) <laughs> whereby it's the it's the Gene Hackman's character from Mississippi Burning, and how does he live in a in a world after the events that took place on the movie? Something like that, yeah, low sure. scale. You can do it in like a limited setting. He's shown how good he can do a limited setting with Angela's Ashes, and yes, I yeah. totally totally with you, Colin. Uh, like just have something, maybe even musical based. Sure, get him. Yeah, sure, put get, songs in it. As, yeah. as, as once like showed, you do not have to have an extensive budget. No. to make a wonderful <laughs> musical and right. something that he's shown to be able to do. And yeah, it would be great if he goes at least for one more turn, <laughs> so that David Gill is not the last thing. Oh, yeah, that people see from Alan Parker's work. But I do hope that, like, our conversation about him has, like, inspired you guys listening in to take a look at some of Alan Parker's other films. As as we've seen, the guy has a really large range, and he's done all sorts of, like, interesting um, uh, themes and moments that have pervaded through his films. And there's a, a lot to appreciate, even in the ones that, like, we've sort of considered misfires. Right. David Gale, notwithstanding, this is the director that has uh, really created a fascinating body of work, and I, um, I'm glad that I got to be the one to co-host on this one because I've enjoyed going back and watching all of his films and kind of watching them grow and and uh, you know just I I I I kind of miss having this these movies around uh, you know coming out every few years, but maybe. <laughs> Maybe David Gale, maybe he's right to quit now. You know, maybe uh, maybe that's a signal that okay, maybe it is time to cash it in, or you know, or, or check it in and and just say okay, I'm done now, uh, because you know, I, I I couldn't imagine having to watch more movies like that. Uh, you know, <laughs> if he's, I mean, well, especially well, if, he's, well, if he could make good movies after uh, Welcome to Wellville, uh, <laughs> he could. Uh, right. he, some, he could. Right. He could somehow recover. From sure, right. sure, right. sure. Right. Whereas films like David Gale, David Gale's pretty bad, but it makes its atrocity manifest at the end. Wellville is an mm. has this atrocious misfire <laughs> sense all the way through. No, David he, Gale has that. Too. Yes, it does. Mm-hmm. But all the Wellville, way through. But well, right. But I agree with Brad. Wellville showed if you can recover from that, <laughs> Gail, if you get him the right material, and 
and it could it could happen. I hope I hope he's up for it. But in the meantime, we at least have a body of work of the films that he did do, yeah. especially my personal favorite on the wall. That's something to treasure out his career and his collaboration. Like, irregardless of how many other death penalty movies he ends up making. <laughs> yeah, I would say you know where should you start? My answer would be uh, shoot the moon and the commitments. And then go see what you like from there. And not not that The Wall isn't great. That's probably my third favorite movie. But that could be a bit much to throw at somebody who maybe doesn't know the, that film or that album. Uh, so, you know, True. if you're coming it's a in. a lot. <laughs> yeah, if you don't know Pink Floyd, The Wall already, then maybe hold off on that one for a little bit. But I would say start with Shoot the Moon and The Commitments. And, yeah, I'd agree, uh, particularly on The Commitments, that that's uh, a great entry uh, into Alan Parker. And then for what I think are his heights, uh, The Wall, and then I would very strongly recommend both uh, Mississippi Burning and Evita. Yeah, cool. And, and Colin, it's really great that we had you on board to uh, join us on this uh, journey out through the works of Alan Parker. Uh, what are you going to be up to in your many, many creative realms coming in the near future? Uh, well, I write uh, about short films for RogerEbert.com, and I have an article going up tomorrow uh, about a short film called Approaching a Breakthrough by a Chicago filmmaker named Noah Pritzker, and it's very much in the vein of Woody Allen. Uh, there's definitely a Woody Allen vibe in it. It all, it's a, a bickering couple in Central Park for ten minutes. There you go. Uh-huh. Uh, but it's played by Kieran Culkin and Mae Whitman. Um, and uh, so I got that article coming out. And um, beyond that, well, I've been building up to this podcast. So uh, and I did Fresh Perspectives last week uh, with Rebecca and Jeff, and we talked about the movie once uh, for about an hour. Um, so another again, Glenn Hansard. Uh, so now that this is done, um, it's pretty much just award season is next, and that's it's revving up. Uh, you revving up for both the TIFF films that are well, starting to get award attention. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to TIFF, the Toronto International Film Festival, but uh, you can hear me every week with Eric Childress and Nick DiGilio on the Nick DiGilio Show on WGN Radio. Um, you go to WGNRadio.com or subscribe to the Nick DiGilio Show on iTunes and get the podcasts that way. But every week we review the films um, every Sunday night slash Monday morning, 2 a.m., depending on how much of a late-nighter you are. All right, good, cool. And like the with award season, at least the floodgates are open and, you know, yeah. and hopefully stuff like the emoji will be far, far Ooh. in your rear view mirror yeah. before too long. Um, and uh, as for uh, as for me and Brad over on the Directors Club, uh, you can go and pass along comments and criticisms and suggestions over at our email address of Directors Club Podcast at gmail.com. You can find us on iTunes at directors club podcast and our episodes are also available on the web through our site at uh, www.directorsclubpodcast.com thanks for listening guys thanks everyone thank you
Yeah. Why do we join a band? You join a band to re-enter kindergarten, you know? You get grown men who get to behave like kids for the rest of their life. You know, it's like you like kids. One more ice cream for Larry. It's like kids in the playground. How you doing? Can I have a couple of ice creams? This young man needs an ice cream. We joined the band to play like together.